Your move, creep. Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. The only thing I know how to do. It's a good-looking boy. I'm a member of the Imperial Senate. That's right, Lord. Welcome to Earth. You crossed the line. You know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Retrograde Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about older movies. We talk about how they were made, how they were received, and whether or not they hold up. I am Austin. And I'm George. All right, guys. So we have an interesting movie that we're going to talk about today. It's interesting because neither Austin and I have seen it. Right. I didn't even know this was a thing. I didn't know it was a thing. Well, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, of course they made a movie about this. Yeah, but I, yes. I've never seen one. I think the one that I <laughs> I think the one that I saw was in um I was in middle school and there was like a substitute teacher and I don't think that she knew like what was in the movie. And there's like a part that happens where she wasn't sure if there was gonna be nudity. So she, I remember her like holding a folder up covering Wait where <laughs> was the movie Excalibur? It might have been. I don't remember <laughs> anything about it except for her covering the screen and there was like a, a masquerade thing. And, and that's that's pretty much it. I don't remember the rest of the movie. <laughs> I've also seen The Green Knight. So oh. I've seen two things related to this. Yeah, same. I saw The Green Knight. I liked it a lot. Well, actually, let's just get into it. What are we going to be talking about this week, Austin? This week, we will be talking about... 1967's Camelot, directed by Joshua Logan and starring Richard Harris, Vanessa Redgrave. Oh, she was in Mission Impossible. Uh, Franco Nero, who was the original Django. Oh. And uh, David Hemmings, Lionel Jeffries, and Lawrence Nysmith. Yeah, this this is like a, an older cast. This yes. is like, oh, Richard Harris was Dumbledore, huh? The first one or the second one? Uh, I think the first one. Yeah, the first oh, one. Oh, it was him. Oh, okay. He was also in Gladiator. Hmm. Okay. As we're showing our age here, like, who are these people? Okay, Mission Impossible, and you were in Django, and you were Harry Potter. <laughs> So see, we we got so we're already starting off on a good foot because we we are slightly familiar with a few of their works and we do like them generally. Now mm. this is an interesting one because typically, either Austin and I will have seen the movie that we're going to talk about, and you know one of us will like give our backstory with it, kind of oh here's the first time I watched it. We can't do that nowadays. We can't we can't do that one with this film because neither of us have seen it. We're not too familiar with, like, 60s era film. Like, we were familiar with the era, yeah, but not extensively. Right. This is this is a, another trip into the the old Hollywood, but not quite as old as, like, Casablanca. And that's the thing, too. This is a very familiar setting, like the medieval, you know, like, Knights of the Round Table and all that. Mm-hmm. So, while I've never heard of this movie, I'm like, okay, sure, Camelot. It's some Arthurian thing, medieval. It's also a musical. Yes. Which, okay. <laughs> I'm kind of worried about this movie a little bit. Th- this was a mm-hmm. recommendation 
right? From this someone. is a birthday request. This, yes, this is a birthday request from Nikki. From what? Nikki. She also requested the Phantom of the Opera. Ah. Which was something that I wanted to do anyway, and I was like, "Yes, this is the excuse I need to do a Phantom of the Opera episode." <laughs> That's why I love doing the podcast. It, we finally mm-hmm. have excuses to like watch the movies that have been on our list for a while. Yeah. All right. So happy birth, happy early birthday, Nikki. Um, this will drop on the birthday, I think. Okay. Now I'm a little hesitant on this one because. Number one, I mean, you know my history with musicals. I'm not... Yes, you lie and say you don't like them, but you like everyone that you've seen. (laughs) I like everyone that we have seen, yes. But I'm not the most enthusiastic about musicals. Like, for example, you're like, hey, George, let's talk about John Wick, The Raid, you know, that testosterone-fueled movies. And I'd be like, yeah, let's go! You know, musicals, I'm a bit more, okay, let's see the trailer. Let's see what the Rotten Tomato score is. Who's in the movie? You know, I mean, you didn't you pay money to see cats in theaters? I did, but the only reason I did that <laughs> was because I heard it was awful, and I was like, I have to watch this because I there's nothing I love more than watching terrible movies. Oh God! And I was slightly disappointed by Cats because it's not really that it's bad, but it was more boring than anything. But oh, that's okay. a whole different that's a whole other story. But mm. Camelot, this is a strange movie because it's. A musical set in this medieval fantasy era. It's also drama, but it's also three hours long. No way! This movie it's three hours long. It that's what that's what it says on Rotten Tomatoes. Two hours and fifty nine minutes. Oh my god! I didn't know that. Yeah, you know. So, and look for me, runtime isn't an issue because if you have a movie that justifies it, it's like okay, yes, this movie's four hours long, but you're gonna get your your money's worth. I'm cool with it. If you have uh, a subscription to our Patreon in our John Wick 4 review, you'll know that one of the different differing points of view that Austin and I have is that we talk about the length. It wasn't a problem for me, but it was slightly an issue for Austin. Right. I felt like the time was warranted. Austin, not so much. Austin was like, hey, you could cut a little bit. You still generally like the film. I still, yes, I still loved watching the movie. It was just, there were times where I was like, Hmm, this is going on kind of long. Yes. Like, don't I don't mind me. I'm I'm just noticing the time here. I'm carry on, John Wick. <laughs> but 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 there is a little bit of like hesitation when you hear about the movie's runtime. Oh, whoa, this movie's three hours long. People did that yeah. with Avatar. People did that this past weekend with Bo is Afraid, where they were like, oh, this movie's three hours long. Now, again, some movies will warrant the length, others won't. But I would not be lying that when I heard that this 1967 American musical fantasy drama film about Arthur and the round table and all that stuff is three hours long. I kind of clenched a little bit. (laughs) I kind of clenched. I was like, ooh. Yeah, I could feel that. Now, I could be I could totally be wrong. I could totally be wrong and be like, no, this movie's totally worth it. But it is a little daunting. But again, on this podcast, you and I try our very best to give everything the benefit of the doubt, to give it a chance, because you never know. Because you are right, Austin. Every musical that we have talked about, I have loved. You have loved, not just liked, you've loved. (laughs) I've gotten so much entertainment out of all of them. Little Shop of Horrors is still like one of my favorites. Same. 
Oh, I'm sure that we will find something to talk about with this movie. Even if we don't like it, I'm sure we're going to like something about it and we're going to have a really fun time researching it and talking about it. So this movie is an Arthurian legend, right? You got you got uh, King Arthur, you got Guinevere, you've got Lancelot, all those guys. But also there's two things. There's three things about this movie that I... I looked up beforehand. Uh, one, this movie was actually an adaptation of a stage musical, right? And Julie Andrews used to be the, I'm assuming, Guinevere in the stage production. You know who Julie Andrews is, oh, right? Oh, yeah. Sound of Music. Sound of Music. If this was a Julie Andrews musical, I would be more enthused to watch this movie. Mm. But instead, we have Max from uh, Mission Impossible, who's still a great actress. But like Julie Andrews is the one that I'm like, oh, the sound of music, you know. Mm -hmm. The second thing is this was one of the final films that Jack Warner produced. Whoa. Do you know who Jack Warner is? One of the Warner Brothers, right? He's one of the Warner Brothers. This was also a very, very expensive movie to make. It did do numbers at the box office, but it was like it might have not been enough to warrant the cost to make the movie because this was also one of the final films to ever, at least American film, that attempted to physically construct a large-scale, full-size set on a studio back lot. Oh, shit. So like they built a they built a castle for this movie, which I wanted I want to find out more about. Cause like that's not just not something you do anymore. You know? Mm-hmm. Like you, you 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 make a green screen and then all right, we'll we'll put we'll fix this in post. You know? If you're gonna make your, your castle movie or like you go off to like Ireland or something and then you know, like we get whatever Game of Thrones did. But they well, actually built a castle for this. It's like you build, you build, like you, you go to a castle that's already built and you film there, yeah. right? Or you do yeah. whatever, like, you need to do in order to make it happen, right? Like CGI yeah, you, or, you built like a, or miniatures. A facade of, mm-hmm, a miniatures. You build a facade so that, like, okay, we're only filming it from this side. So we only need this much. We'll, we'll pull some, like, stock footage from the rest of the castle to, like, let the audience, uh, you know, get it. But damn, they, they just don't do this anymore. And I wonder if you could actually find this. Well, this was a Warner Brothers thing, right? So what's this? They don't have a, a theme park, do they? They just let you go on the studio tour. Yeah. I wonder if the set still exists somewhere. I mean, I've been on the tour twice. I don't think I've ever seen it. Damn. If it costs good money to make it, I mean, I would have kept it up, but, but that's a, but that's also a thing though. Like, I don't know, this might be ignorant of me to say, but it's not really a, it doesn't seem like it's a well-known classic or like, uh, mm. like, you know, like a gone with the wind or like a Casablanca, you know, like it's not, it doesn't seem like it's at that level. Cause there are certain films that even though we haven't seen, we're familiar with it. Right. 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 I was I'm, I was familiar probably, with both uh, Casablanca and Gone with the Wind, even though right, those are like those are like you know all time greats. Yeah, you know Camelot doesn't really have that, 
So for them to make the big bet on, oh, this is going to be one of our standout pictures. We're going to go all in and build a castle and stuff. And I mean, again, I've never really heard of this movie. I, I'm not surprised that it exists. Mm-hmm. But it does kind of like, well, why are we going to keep this castle for a movie that maybe a lot of people haven't heard of? Now, this is just this could be just my ignorance. Maybe it's way more popular than I'm giving it credit. But I'm just that's why we do this section of the podcast. Just these are our first thoughts, our recollections mm-hmm. before we actually watch the movie, research it, have form our own opinions. But that's kind of where I'm at right now. It doesn't seem like it warrants or the box office and popularity that it and the reviews that it did bring in didn't catapult it to be this big classic. Mm hmm. Let's go to the box office. The box office is really interesting for this movie because it's an older movie, right? It's like from 60, 67. Mm-hmm. So the box office numbers are kind of incomplete of the films from that those years. So I have the numbers, which is like a, a box office site similar to box office mojo but i feel like they have a lot more information there they just don't see where they got it from so it's kind of like i guess you know Mm -hmm. and there's also on wikipedia it shows the highest grossing films in um the u.s and in 67 on wikipedia at least it says the number one film was the graduate okay a movie that we have was very famous very we're very familiar with this one Mm mm-hmm Number two, guess who's coming to dinner? The Sydney Portier one, right? Yeah, yeah. Another film I feel like we're both familiar with. Mm-hmm. Number three, Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, yep. Number four, The Dirty Dozen. Number five, Valley of the Dolls. Number six, To Sir with Love. Damn, Sydney Portier has got two top ten movies up here. God damn. damn. We gotta do one of his movies one of these yes. days. Um uh, number seven, you only live twice. The James Bond. James Bond, Bond yeah. Okay. Yes, yeah. Number eight, thoroughly modern Millie. American musical romantic comedy film. Starring Julie Andrews. Whoa, okay. Oh, she was busy. She couldn't come back for Camelot because she had modern Millie. On slate, I guess. Uh, number nine, the Jungle Book. Whoa, the Disney, the the animated, yeah, the animated one, mm-hmm. oh. Bare Necessities. It came on nineteen sixty seven. I did not know that. And then number ten is Camelot. Oh, this movie. Uh, yeah, this movie. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it was at the top ten of the box office, but I feel like this is one of those like. When we go back to the year, it's like, do you remember this movie? Uh-uh. I don't even know what that is. This is one of, the, we're finally doing one of those movies. Well, oh yeah, exactly. Well, that's the interesting thing. That's kind of like, maybe this kind of, kind of, this kind of proves my point a little bit. I mean, you were going down that list and we haven't seen a lot of them, but we're familiar enough with them. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. I've never seen The Graduate, but I'm all too familiar with that movie. All right. I even know how it ends. Uh, Sidney yeah. Portier. I'm not, I haven't seen any of his movies at all, but I'm I'm familiar I'm familiar with him. And even that uh, you only live twice. Like I'm like, 
that sounds like a James Bond movie. <laughs> I've seen that one. That's the is that Roger Moore? No, it's uh, Sean Connery. But it's I think this is the one where Sean Connery like comes back as James Bond. <gasps> or no, he comes back in Diamonds Are Forever. Oh wait, this, this I there's something about Sean Connery and having two James Bond films, but one of them isn't canonical. Or, oh, or, that one is uh, Never Say Never Again. Oh, gotcha. Okay, okay. So what he quit being James Bond like twice, basically. Mm-hmm. He he quit after Thunderball, I think. And then they got George Lazenby, and then George Lazenby that they didn't do another one with him, so they got uh, Sean Connery to come back. And then I think this might have been his last one as James Bond that was canonical. Because then they did Never Say Never Again, but that one wasn't canonical. It was like a remake of Thunderball. What? Yeah. Well, that's weird. It is weird because it's like, I remember I was watching like all the James Bond movies and I was, I got to Never Say Never Again. And I'm like, wait a minute. This, this just seems like Thunderball. Why? (laughs) And it's just a remake of Thunderball? It's it's different, but like the plot's the same and the bad guy's the same. It's okay. That's we got to do a James Bond movie eventually on the podcast. We James do. Bond we do. is a, has. I mean, you want to talk about history? Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ! I talking about the rights, the actors, George. My boy never got a chance. Oh, yeah. The. I, they had like weird rights over certain things, right? So like you couldn't do the gun barrel in Never Say Never Again, but he could be James Bond, but maybe he couldn't be 007. I don't know. It's weird. It's, we could get into it yeah. when when we go there. <laughs> but uh, well, but that's the thing. These movies that just kind of proves my point. Like these, there are still some remnants of those movies in modern culture, right? The Graduate, mm-hmm. uh, Sydney Portier. Camelot doesn't really have that. Now, again, I could be wrong, talking out my ass, but I am still curious to go back and see this because maybe, yeah. maybe was it was it ahead of its chance? Was it ahead of its time? Was it just not admired? Because you and I both know this very very well, Austin, that a movie can be fucking great and come out at the wrong time. And mm-hmm. there's a movie that was kind of like that that we've talked about that you and I both adore, and we came mm-hmm. to the conclusion that it came out at the wrong time. Yeah, Do you know- there's a lot of movies that we've... Well, I think you're thinking of Speed Racer. Yeah, oh my God, how the fuck? You have the... Yes, <laughs> I was talking about Speed Racer, but I was like, he I, might not get it. But I, I... Because I know, because that was one of the things where it's like, wait, you like Speed Racer? Or did we just become best friends? <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 we, but even we talked about it in that episode. Yeah. It, it was a great movie. People shat on it for no reason. And it just came out at the wrong time. When... Mm-hmm. When grown men were being vindicated by Iron Validated. Man and the Dark Knight. So maybe this could be a Speed Racer scenario. Could be. This. What's also interesting is that this year, like, I know, maybe I haven't seen The Graduate, but I know the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. You know, I know all those uh, Paul Hello, Simon or Simon and Garfunkel songs that came from The Graduate. The Jungle Book. I refer to it, oh, it's the bare necessities, you know? I know the soundtrack. The You Only Live Twice. I know that song. And I think it was even, like, sampled in uh, uh, the Robbie Williams song, Millennium. 
Oh. Which is, it's like an t- early 2000s pop song, late late 90s pop song, English pop. Uh, to Sir With Love, I know the, the song from that one. I don't think I've ever heard any songs from Camelot that I know of. Well, it, well, that's the interesting thing. There maybe are some. Maybe we just don't know about yeah, it, you know? Maybe. And that's why it's it's interesting to go back and see, all right, well, what do we know about this? What don't we? And if we know nothing about it, then we really are going into this super blind, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. And this is also somebody's favorite movie, right? Oh, this Somebody- is Nikki's favorite movie? Yeah, one of or one of her favorite movies. Because I was gonna say, so, I was like, oh, okay. I thought Phantom was. I think it's it's one of her favorite oh, movies. But it, it, it means might a be lot favorite. to her. Yes. So may, maybe maybe we'll see we'll, we'll we'll watch this movie knowing that okay, this is somebody's favorite movie. Why? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we'll maybe we'll like see what makes it so special, or maybe it's just one of those things where it's like you you see it at a young age and it leaves an impression on you right and that just it just never goes away it's like Ooh. your thing oh absolutely i mean how many films do we have that are like that you know you can't convince me that jingle all the way with arnold schwarzenegger is not a great movie <laughs> i love the shit out that movie but it was reviled or not reviled but it was dogged on when it came out so yeah. who's to say i'm right and they're wrong or vice versa. Mm-hmm. I am really interested to see this. And again, that's why we do this podcast. So we can revisit stuff that we're familiar with, but also stuff that we're not. And if we're going into this absolutely blind, never having heard a song, not really too familiar with all the actors um, from an era that we are still learning about. That's exciting because I have no idea what to expect. Same. Well, where can we watch Camelot? If you would like to watch Camelot with us, it is available on the rental sites. I don't think anybody's streaming it uh, with a subscription. So it's on Google, Apple, Amazon Prime, YouTube, Redbox for $2.99 to $3.99. Um, so we will be watching it on one of those things. And then we will be back in one minute, talk about what we think and with some research on how this movie was made. Because they do, they literally don't make them like this anymore. Ooh, that's <laughs> that's exciting, isn't it? Yeah, we really are. Like this, we really are witnessing a piece of history that Hollywood yeah. has long moved away from. Mm-hmm. It might have been like the beginning of the end of like the big movie movie musicals. I mean, Star yeah, Wars was a few years away. Yeah, Star Wars, Jaws. You know, I mean, that was a big mm-hmm. shift. I mean, the 60s, you have to remember that in the 60s, there were a lot of movies that were focused on, like, nihilism and, like, I mean, this is still at the height of the civil rights movement. There was a lot of turmoil in the country, right? And you're having a three-hour G-rated studio musical about King Arthur. Mm-hmm. I mean, this this really could have been the end of an era. Yeah. Shit, that's kind of depressing, isn't it? Well, you know, things change. You know, like there used to, we we have superhero movies now, but if maybe we're getting the to the end of that, we're going to move on to something else. Like I really liked uh, some of the horror movies coming from Asia, 
right? Like you had uh, the grudge, the ring, and then there was like a whole trend of like, oh, let's make an adaptation of that um, with a American cast. And that went on for a long time. And then it stopped suddenly. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like the new, the new trend. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, they come back every once in a while. Well, right? every, yeah, nothing, nothing stays dead for long. Yeah. Well, let's get into it. We will, we will be back after watching Camelot. We will see you in one minute. I know it sounds a bit bizarre. But in Camelot. Camelot. That's how conditions are. The rain may never fall till after sundown. By eight the morning fog must disappear. In short, there's simply not a more congenial spot. For happily ever aftering than here in Camelot. And I suppose the autumn leaves fall into neat little piles. Oh no, my lady. They blow away completely. At night, of course. <laughs> Hello, everybody. We are back. We have just finished watching. 1967's Camelot, directed by Joshua Logan, starring Richard Harris, Vanessa Redgrave, Franco Nero, and David Hemmings. This was a birthday request from our listener, Nikki. Happy birthday, Nikki. Happy birthday, and, Nikki. And they requested this movie. This is one of their favorite movies. And I appreciate the recommendation, I would have never watched this movie without this podcast. Same. Um, and I know this this sounds negative when people say, this is an interesting movie. It's like, oh, you're just being nice. You just don't like it. That's not the case. I do like this movie, mostly. There's parts of it that I don't like. But the fact that it exists in this way, the, the time period in which it came out, and the content of the movie... And how expensive this movie was and how like one of the Warner Brothers decided after this movie, I don't want to be in this company anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Like that. It's a very interesting movie. Mm -hmm. So when I say that, I'm not just saying that to be nice. I do think there's there's so much cool stuff to talk about in this movie, stuff that that happens in the movie and stuff about the movie. Okay, I watched this movie before you did, and you were like, so what do you think of it so far? And I was like, it's interesting. And you were like, that's not a glowing praise. I was like, no, it, it very much is interesting. So you saying all that, I'm like, I told you. I told you yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I very much agree with you. Now, I, te- I think I, I tend to lean a little bit more positively on the film, uh, but I can acknowledge its faults. And the movie has some faults. but. Yeah, I there's think- one th- one thing that I wanted to mention that I I forgot. I'm not really sure what the intended message was, but the way that I interpret the film's ending makes me like it more. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure what I was supposed to get out of it, if that makes sense. Well, it kind of goes to the ending. 
Um, I think this movie hits one critical point really well, which is something that I've had an issue with in a previous episode that we talked about, in a previous movie that we talked about. But I think this movie nails it. And I think because, in my opinion, the movie nails that point, I I enjoyed the film. And there's still there's a lot to like about the movie in terms mm-hmm. of like the way it was made, some of the things that some of the story beats. It does have some faults, but ultimately, I I appreciated watching the movie. I I'm I am glad it exists, but it is interesting. <laughs> and there's some <laughs> things that I'm just I can't. I was like I was straight up annoyed by, which we will talk about. Mm-hmm. But because it hits that one thing really hard, I'm like, okay, I'm happy I saw this. So thank you very yeah, much, Nikki, for the recommendation. Yes. For people who haven't seen this movie, what do you think? Is this like a strong recommendation? Is this like a uh, maybe or do you just not recommend it? Okay. Um, I This is it's a difficult one to recommend because mm-hmm. it is three hours long and you do feel the length yes. of this movie. Like, I think the beginning is very rough. Like, I did mm-hmm. not like the beginning of this movie and I didn't like the movie until a certain point. And then I was like all on board. I was enjoying myself. And then kind of towards the end, I'm like, wait, how do how am I supposed to feel about this? Am I enjoying this still or am I just like seeing it through? I don't know. But it is an interesting piece of cinema history. So if you're curious about like a film in that way, how like movies used to be, there's a when you think of like the golden age of Hollywood, and like the big Broadway musical adaptations, you know, Singing in the Rain, Sound of Music, all that stuff. This film was the beginning of the end of that period in time. Whoa. So if that is interesting to you, I would recommend this movie. Or if you just want to like have a better context for the conversation we're about to have, then I would recommend this movie. But it... I'm I'm warning you, like the first 20 minutes of this movie is is kind of difficult and it is three hours long. <laughs> I don't like complaining about a movie's runtime because I'm like, well, if the movie needs to be three hours, like if the story justifies it, then let it be three hours. Like I've seen three hour movies that breeze by. This is not one of those movies. <laughs> right. It, it's- it, and, and I 100 percent agree with you. For me, the beginning's the worst part. For me, and the movie progressively gets better as it goes on for me personally, where it ends like the ending for me, the last 20 minutes I was in. I was like, I'm loving everything I'm seeing and happening. And I'm really curious as to how this is all going to come together. But that beginning is rough. I was like, oh, this is this is why I don't like King Arthur. This is why I don't like musicals. And I mean, the movie has a certain charm, but I was just like, oh, God, three hours of this. (laughs) It It does get better. So. If how we're talking about it intrigues you, then yeah, absolutely. It's worth the rental. If you're like, "Ah, I'm not really that curious, then you'll be fine skipping it. But it is it is still we're still going to have like a really good episode because there's so so much cool stuff to talk about. Even if you don't are not interested in watching the movie, let Austin and I guide you because there are some really interesting things happening. And if you listen to the episode and like it, this might even persuade you to go rent it. Okay. So what is Camelot about? What happens here? Well, it's, you know, King Arthur, right? And King Arthur is real sad in the forest. He's got an army and he's about to go to war against Lancelot, you know, his friend. 
and he's like, oh, how did everything go wrong? What happened? And then he gets like, uh, it reminds me of like Obi-Wan talking to Luke. <laughs> Remember, uh, he gets like a, a vision of Merlin t t t telling him to think back of where it all began. And he's like, oh, let me remember. Then it goes into like the past of when Arthur meets Guinevere. And she's, he has a song where he's like, I wonder like where he thinks of the people and they're probably thinking about what the king is doing tonight. And in that song, he confesses that he's afraid of this arranged marriage as Guinevere. He doesn't want to like do a marriage. He's afraid of it. He's trying to hide from, from his kingly duties. And then Guinevere, we see her played by Vanessa Redgrave. She has a song called The Simple Joys of Maidenhood in which she doesn't really want to be married. She wants to like have fun and like have romances and stuff, you know, she's horny. <laughs> she kind of has her maiden like go make her tea and she like runs away and she runs into King Arthur, but she doesn't know he's King Arthur. And she's like, oh, a, a rogue, a bandit has come to ravish me. You leap on me and throw me to the ground. I won't do any such thing. You'll sling me over your shoulder and carry me off. No, 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 no. I swear by the sword Excalibur, I won't touch you. Why not? How dare you insult me in this fashion? She she lives in like a fantasy world. <laughs> and she she wants to be taken away, right? And then King Arthur is like, oh, I'm not I'm not like that. And, she, and she's like, what, am I ugly? Uh, and he's <laughs> like, no. Oh, look, it's Camelot. Isn't you know Camelot's like a paradise? And he has a song called Camelot, and he sings about how everything's perfect in Camelot. And then or they get found by like the army and her entourage, and then she's like, "Oh, they're gonna kill you because you're 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 trying to take them away from the king. Uh, defend yourself." <laughs> and then they find out she finds out he's the king, and then he's he tells the story of Excalibur, and then they get married, and she's. She's kind of like, I feel like she likes him because she thought he was this like rogue bandit type person. So she she was attracted to that. And because she has to marry this guy anyway, she's kind of OK with it because she was attracted to him. Right. Mm -hmm. So years go by. He has this whole idea of how to like the feudal system is bad and he wants like everyone to just kind of like not fight anymore. He wants everyone to just talk everything out. He has this idea for a round table where you'd have all the noble knights just come together and talk about stuff. And they're not going to fight over position because this is a round table. It has no head. And she's like, oh, well, I have a, a round table. My dad has one. It was a wedding gift. We can use that. And he's like, yes, this is just like Merlin said. Arthur has this weird relationship with Merlin uh -huh. where he met Merlin in the past as a kid. He taught him everything. He made him wise. He allowed him to see from the perspective of animals. But none of the other characters in the film ever meet Merlin. It's, it's almost like Merlin isn't real. So they sent out a bunch of letters to tell people to join his roundtable. And Lancelot, played by Franco Nero, gets this letter in France and he's like, oh, this is like the perfect job for me because I'm like the best knight ever. And he has this whole song, C'est Moi, about how he's the best knight. Lancelot is kind of like lawfully good Gaston 
<laughs> from Beauty yes, and the Beast. Yes. <laughs> um, this was one of my favorite parts of the movie, I think. His number here. So he comes over to 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 Camelot and this knight like brushes by him and knocks him down. He's like, what the fuck? That was rude. So he challenges him to a joust and he beats him. And then, oh, it's King Arthur. And Lancelot's like, oh, my God, I just hit King Arthur. I I am so sorry. I, I, I love you. I pledge my allegiance to you. I liked your whole roundtable thing. But I've got some ideas, too. Uh, and then he talks to Arthur and Arthur's like, oh, my wife is she's doing a, a May party. She's picking flowers. And he's like, knights pick flowers. And Arthur's like, yes, it is good for a civilization to have gentle hobbies. Let's go. And then we have Guinevere singing her song, The Lusty Month of May. Very horny song. And she's talking. I hate about, it. You hate that song? I hate it. We'll get into wow. it. Wow. Okay. Okay. I really like this one. Oh. Um, so she's just like looking at all these like young couples. Like, you know, this is a G rated movie, but it's very suggestive here. Like all the mm-hmm. stuff that's that she's singing about and all the things she's looking it's at. Yes, you may. A time for every frivolous whim, proper or im. And Arthur and Lancelot come by and they're like, hey, look, this is Lancelot. He's a really good knight. He's got some ideas. And she's like, uh-huh. Yeah, well, this is Arthur's idea, okay? And he's like, well, any idea, no matter how good it is, can be improved. For example... The Knights of the Round Table, there should be some kind of like a trial thing. And she's like, what, they all have to be as good as you? He's like, no one can be as good as me. I'm too good. I would never ask that of somebody else. So then Guinevere talks to some of the knights and she's like, who are the best knights we have? And none of the people like Lancelot, by the way. They're all like making fun of him for being French, even though he has a very strong <laughs> Italian accent. <laughs> um, so they all hate this guy for like, he comes off as arrogant, but he he doesn't like mean to be arrogant, but they'll hate this guy. He's a new guy. He's a new kid. Uh, so they're like, oh, well, I'm this is a really strong knight. This is a really strong knight. And I'm a really strong knight. So then Guinevere's like, hmm, it's, it's one of my favorite parts of the movie. She like walks to the camera and you can see her plotting and scheming. And she basically manipulates these three knights to challenge uh, Lancelot to a duel in the song, then you may take me to the fair. She kind of manipulates them to like challenge Lancelot. And then Arthur finds out about this and he's like, hey, it's it kind of looks bad if you are giving favors to all these guys that are going to beat Lancelot. And she's like, well, are you ordering me as king to stop? Or are you asking me? Because if you're asking me, I'm not going to stop. And if you order me, I'll never forgive you. <laughs> Uh, so then he has a song about oh, women, you know, how to handle women. It's a, I hate this song. The joust happens and Lancelot just wipes the floor with all three of these guys back to back. But the last guy dies. And they're like, oh, damn, this guy's dead. It's so sad. But Lancelot, he goes over to the guy and he like begs the guy to live. And then through a miracle of Lancelot's like, virtue and everything the guy's brought back to life and then guinevere's like oh shit i have the hots for lancelot Mm -hmm. and lancelot he has the hots for guinevere now 
and they they meet and they they talk and then they confide in each other and they feel like oh shit we're both in love what are we gonna do about arthur we can't betray arthur like this uh so they kind of like uh, meet in secret and years go by people are like um trying to tell arthur lancelot and guinevere are having an affair and he's like no they're not you're ex you're you're banished right because the way the law is set up is really fucked up like so he tries to change the law so that there has to be a court there has to be evidence and if there's evidence then there's the trial and at the same time arthur's illegitimate son mordred arrives at camelot and he's just he's just clearly there to fuck with king arthur and to make himself the king and arthur he knows this, but he he's so naive. He thinks he can like make Mordred see he could like turn Mordred to the good side, right? To make him not as manipulative and evil. But it never works. Mordred's just a bad guy trying to manipulate things for for people to be against Arthur and Lancelot. Uh, Mordred convinces Arthur to like stay hunting at night as a test. And Lancelot and Guinevere find out that Arthur is outside, outside hunting, so they go like meet with each other, and then Mordred and his guys, they jump him, and Lancelot runs away. And Arthur's like, oh no, he, they found him. He, Arthur knew the whole time that there's, they've been having an affair, by mm -hmm. the way. And Guinevere is arrested, and the trial says, okay, we burn her at the stake. And Arthur's just letting all this happen. He's kind of hoping Lancelot will come by and save her. And there's even a song about this. And then Lancelot comes by and saves her. And he kills like 80 people in the process. <laughs> like half of the knights of the round table are dead. <laughs> and Arthur is like, well, damn. And then we're kind of caught up to like the very beginning of the movie. And Arthur is meeting Lancelot and Guinevere in secret. And they meet up and Arthur's like, well, there's nothing we can do. He shakes hands with Lancelot. And he finds out that Guinevere has to, she's like become a nun or something. I don't know. She's become a sister of the cloth, whatever that means. And she says goodbye to everybody. I'll kill you tomorrow. Good luck. Have a good nice rest or whatever. And then he, before he goes into battle, he finds this young boy, Tom. And Tom is just like, he bought into the whole, like, Knights of the Round Table um, uh, mantra. It's not might makes right, it's might for right. It's everything that the table stood for before <laughs> he's about to go to war against Lancelot. And he's like, yes, all right. This idea will live on in this young boy, Tom. Tom... Here are your orders. You run away and survive this battle. Don't fight. And then tell everybody about how Camelot used to be. Run, boy. Run. Run, boy. Run, boy. Run. Oh, run, my boy. And then the movie ends. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, 
it's it's interesting because this is a three hour long movie, but not much happens. I felt like our story, like your story summary of Scream, was a lot longer because yeah. you kind of had to establish this person's perspective and this is what this person's talking about and this is the and this movie it's very straightforward like it's a very straightforward movie you could almost make the argument that it doesn't need to be three hours it doesn't need to be three hours no but i thoroughly enjoyed it i do have issues with it but i enjoyed it and one of the big reasons i enjoyed it was because of the love triangle between King Arthur, Guinevere, and Lancelot. Now, does Guinevere, which they call her Jenny, so if if I call her Jenny, then I'm referring to Guinevere. Does Guinevere really like or love Arthur? I think she does. She still has positive feelings about him. There's even that song that they sing, uh, What the Common Folk Do, I think. Oh, I, f- I missed that one. I did not like that song, but I, I, I feel like you kind of need it. That song is important. Now, I'm not crazy about it as well, but it is an important song. It's uh, what do simple folk do, right? And that's mm-hmm. a moment where Guinevere is trying to distract Arthur from like everything that's happening because the table is like slowly crumbling and it's kind of like a nice distraction. And the song ends with both of them just looking miserable because they're kind of realizing that everything's catching up to them. And the whole yeah. like. It's interesting because after Lancelot saves Sir Dinadon, right, from, like, where he kind of almost revives him, he's knighted by King Arthur. Lancelot's right. knighted by King Arthur. But King Arthur is already having his suspicions, and he basically knows by that point. And Guinevere and Lancelot really haven't been a thing for long. Like, they've admitted to each other that they love each other. Almost... King Arthur can pick up on it immediately. Like, there's a scene where it's like, before Lancelot gets knighted, he's like, come <laughs> join me in my quarters, and me and my wife will have a drink with you. And, like, the, the scene is silent, and it's just them looking at each other. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. like, they all know, like, there's sexual tension that they're all aware of, but nobody talks about. He immediately knows. So after he knights Lancelot, he kind of goes into his chambers, and he kind of just says it out loud that he knows what's up. And he, mm-hmm. and he and one part of him is like they're conspiring against me. Jenny's a slut. Lancelot's a traitor. Like he, these negative thoughts are corrupting his brain. And then like the other side, like the right side of his brain, kind of comes in. It's like no, like they love me. They like they have shown me that they care for me. And like I trust Lancelot and I love Jenny. And he's like no, like we will get through this. This and is, he also um, knows that they love each other. And he's yes, like, yeah. maybe they can't control their passions, right? So yes, they can't he control. even admits it. And like the, the, the marriage between Arthur and Jenny was like arranged. Like they didn't yes. know each other before they were going to be married. They didn't even meet until their wedding day. Like Jenny does seem to like Arthur. Like she, it doesn't seem like she resents him. It doesn't seem like, like, I'm sure if Lancelot had never gone into the picture, I'm pretty sure Jenny would have been fine with being with Arthur. But she loves Lancelot. And like like you said, even Arthur admits that sometimes you can't control passions. And at the end of that song, he or at the end of that like monologue, he says, no, we're going to get through this. And then the final shot before the intermission. So like halfway, there's an intermission. Uh, is all the knights coming to the round table. I love that. I love the whole love triangle between them. I love that chemistry. I love what's happening. And I'm like, that's what got me through the film very much so. I think it's the meat of it. 
I'm personally not interested in what the politics were at this time or of this world. I don't care about Arthur being the one to pick up the sword from the stone or the anvil, whatever. I don't give a shit. I don't care. But I love this romance. And that's what the movie is clearly like trying to hone in on, like trying to figure out what's happening and how they could live with it. And, you know, I it, it seems like these are grown people that are that love and respect each other that are just trying to come to terms with what's happening. Right. Which is like it doesn't go the telenovela route where it's like King Arthur finds out he's like, Lancelot, you asshole. And he, they <laughs> try to fight and then two nations are warring, or it, you know, like it's not. You know, and Guinevere's like, no, please, I love him. I'll be with you and I'll love you if you spare his life or some shit like that. Like, and I'm not even saying that shit. Like, it's just, it's very, yeah, it's typical. like literally the end of Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> yes. I, I love the relationship between the three of them. I love that love triangle. And I love that the movie is almost kind of like, in a weird way, like, how would people approach this kind of situation? Because then you're also because you also have something like passion, like the movie is kind of about like passion versus like uh, like the the rule of the land, you know, like the knighthoods, what's like responsibility, you know, because Arthur mm-hmm. doesn't want to kill Jenny at the end. He doesn't want to kill Guinevere, but like like M- Mortar says, or what's his name? How do you pronounce it? Mortar. Oh, yeah, that's right. That That name is... Mordred, Mordred. The thing Mordred. about the Arthurian legend is that there's they're all like the same characters, but they sometimes their names are like a little bit different, and sometimes their relationships are a little bit different too. Like in oh. this in this one, Arthur's it's Arthur's son or his illegitimate son, and in some he's like his half sister's lover, and then in oh. some he's like the product of incest between him and his sister. Oh. Okay. Yeah, well, he, it's, it's he's his wow. illegitimate son in this one but mordred's like if you if you save your wife you destroy your legacy if you kill her uh you save like your leg like there's a specific line that he said that i was like your majesty why not ignore the verdict and pardon her you can't do that can you let her die your life is over let her live your life's a fraud kill the queen kill the yeah it's it's all it's all about like duty versus love right that's that's like the the central conflict in a lot of these like fan fantasy medieval like stories and i love that i think that's great and i love how you have arthur who's like very much duty bound and you have lancelot that's very passionate Right, he's a passionate guy. Well, he's he is duty bound, which is he, why the him loving Guinevere is such a a strange thing for him, right? Because he's mm-hmm. he's been he's sworn to celibacy. He's yes. like, I don't take part. It's in his songs. I don't take in pleasures of the flesh, right? Mm-hmm. But then his whole world has changed when he wins the favor of Guinevere. I love kind of how the movie approaches that. It's what kept me entertained. And once I kind of mm-hmm. saw where it was headed, I mean, you kind of figure that something's there, but you're not sure exactly in what direction it's headed. Once they declare their love for each other, it's like, oh, I'm invested, but I hope you don't fuck this up because I've seen this messed up, seen this get messed up plenty of times where it becomes melodramatic, it comes, you no know, very telenovela, 
And I'm like, well, you had something and you wasted it. Instead of approaching this with some sensibility or with some thoughtfulness, you're just going in and going the basic route of, I want you, you know, and I'm, it sounds like I'm criticizing it. I still enjoy it. Like I enjoyed it with Phantom of the Opera, mm-hmm. but I much prefer this route. Cause then you're like, you're not really sure who they should end up with right yeah like it's not like easy like okay that guy is evil so like don't pick him <laughs> nobody's evil here right they're just no irresponsible Lancelot feels terrible <laughs> one of your feels terrible and arthur's conflicted because he is duty bound the entire first half of the movie is him just saying how can i make this a great nation what can i do look at all these nations fighting for property and land like how can i fix this and he's legitimately trying and he's a good guy and he's i don't think he's boring or anything he's just he has a particular way of that he likes to talk and he wants to like fix things (laughs) it's just i think this fixes the problem that i have with phantom of the opera which phantom of the opera the best thing about phantom was for me the style but also the phantom himself right because we spend a large Mm -hmm. time talking about the actual phantom and that was like such an interesting conversation, right? The Phantom was the show stealer. But for me, the love triangle was boring. I, I can't even tell you the character the, the other two characters' names. It's been a few months. Ralph? I, Ralph? Oh, I forgot and Ralph. And Christine? Christine, I forgot. I just know the Phantom because he was the most memorable part and his name's pretty easy. I could not care about that love triangle as much. So everything else kind of compensated for that. But here it's like... Oh my God, Arthur, Lancelot, and Jenny, like, I love them. And I felt so bad. And I I think I'm almost conditioned to hate one of them because of all the media we've seen, especially when it comes to love triangles. But this reminded me of like, um, you know, something like A Tale of Two Cities, where it's just like, oh man, I don't really yeah, know how we, to feel about this. Just watched uh, Casablanca, and that also had a love triangle where like, nobody's the bad guy. I, yes thank you and that it makes it so it's so much better in my opinion i think it just makes it more entertaining it's am, more ambiguous it's more dramatic yes because it is sometimes it is really fun to like hate one of them you know mm-hmm. but it's not as it's not as dramatic i'm not like as in i don't know if invested is the right word i'm not as sympathetic i think sympathetic is the right word because sometimes yeah when someone's bad it's like okay well you should clearly be with this other person but in this situation, we're way more sympathetic to Arthur and Lancelot and Guinevere because they're really stuck between a rock and a hard place. And you can't help but wonder, what are you going to do? And the characters have such great respect for each other and admiration and genuine love that they're about to, that Lancelot and Arthur are about to go to battle at the end. They might have to fight with each other and they might end up killing one another. But they can still have a conversation and realize that this is shitty, but that the powers that be, the nation, the army, the rules, the law, are going against their relationship. What are you supposed to do? And I love that. I think it's great. I'm, I'm, I, it, I'm way more engaged by that. That's, I think that's my favorite thing about the movie. That kind of superseded everything else. Okay. I think my favorite part of the movie might be Vanessa Redgrave. Guinevere? I yeah, Guinevere. I've I've never really cared much about the Arthurian le- legend. You know, I've never seen like the animated one where the kid pulls Excalibur out from the, the Disney one, right? 
Yeah. The Sword in the Stone. Is that what it's called? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yes, yeah, The Sword in the Stone. Yeah. It's, uh, it's from 1963. The Arthurian legend to me is like your Peter Pan, where like you don't care about Peter Pan at all. I, I watched The Green Knight. I watched Monty Python, and that might be it for, for King Arthur and me. So I, I didn't really... I didn't really know much about Guinevere and I really like the way uh, Vanessa Redgrave plays her in this movie. Cause she seems like really fun. She's kind of like a bad person in the beginning. She has this whole song about how, Oh, I want people to fight to the death for me. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, you're kind of a bad person, but this song is kind of fun. <laughs> she has, she has another song when she's like manipulating everybody to like fight for her. Or to fight Lancelot for her. Mm-hmm. There's there's like an exchange of of like, oh, are you going to thrash him and bash him? I'll smash him. And it just, just, I don't know. I don't know what the words are. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just drop it in. You will bash and thrash him. I will smash and mash him. You'll give him trouble. He will be rubble. A mighty whack. His skull will crack. Oh dear. Then you may take me to the fair if you do all the things you promise. In fact, my heart will break should you not take me to the fair. It's just so vicious, and no, it's really fun, and yeah, the way she plays. Her in the beginning is really fun and then like you start to see her as more of a like human because her her like manipulations and everything almost got Sir Dinadan killed right he did die he could be brought back to life um, and you kind of see her change throughout the, she kind of um, matures in character mm-hmm. and that was really fun to watch and I liked her songs even though Vanessa Redgrave is not a singer I really liked her songs, including the one that you did not like, George. Yeah, I I will agree with you. She was great, though. And it's interesting because, yeah, she's kind of not great. I wouldn't go so far as to say she's a bad person. Uh, I wouldn't kind mind, of a bad person. I wouldn't mind people fighting for me to the death. You, <laughs> you and Chris. It's like, yes, who gets to keep Jorge? I, 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 I would not I mean, fight anyone for you, George. Because <laughs> you know, because you know, I'm already yours. Unless they were trying to like attack you, <laughs> then I. But like for your your attention, no. The podcast is over. Like <laughs> a fight. No, but but I I do get what you're saying, and yes, like realistically, that's you know, it's it's not great. But it kind of in the movie, there's like a tongue in cheek, like she's kind of naive, she's young, she wants yeah. to be desired. But here's the thing, maybe. In a played by another person, she would have been a lot more unlikable. But Vanessa Redgrave has a fun aspect to her. That's yes. Like, oh, like she's she's just fun to be around. Yeah, she's fun. Because originally Julie Andrews, you know, yes. the Mary Poppins, the 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 nanny in The Sound of Music, you know, Julie Andrews was going to play Guinevere. She played Guinevere in the original production because this was a musical on Broadway. So she played her before, and I don't see that Julie Andrews playing this kind of Guinevere, actually. Like, the, the seductress Guinevere. I don't see that from Julie Andrews. 
was Julie Andrews the original in the original play? Yeah. Really? Yeah, it was Julie Andrews and um We talked about this in the first part. I can't remember. Okay, well Julie Andrews was supposed to be in this movie actually, but she declined because she was either busy there's a lot of different stories but she hates richard harris and richard harris hates her so she was like not gonna do it because of that but also because jack warner like didn't think she was a star and she might have been holding a grudge over it she might have been busy with something else a lot of other things were, were happening but it was supposed to be julie andrews and the the guy who was on the the musical before Richard Burton. Richard Burton. Yes, that was the name. They were both named Richard, so I would, I kept like scrolling over it. Jesus, people back then did have no, no creativity naming their sons. No, they did not. <laughs> okay, I, I and I love Julie Andrews, of course, but there's just something that Vanessa brings, and sometimes it's just hard to put into words exactly what that is. Like some actors just have. You know what I mean? Like a good comparison would probably be like a modern comparison. Just so people, you know, you could argue it's it's kind of like that RDJ with Robert, uh, Robert Downey Jr. with Iron Man. Like maybe you could actually figure maybe you could put to words why he's great as Iron Man, but he just has it. There are a lot of actors that find parts that just work great for them. They have exactly what's needed to bring that character to life. To make them likable, or to make us even hate them if they're the villain, you know what I mean. But, but like but, we can, we can find faults in their character and still enjoy watching them. Yeah, absolutely. If that makes sense. No, no, a hundred percent. And again, another actress may have not made Guinevere as cool or as fun, but Vanessa Redgrave, like I never disliked her. You know, I there was never a point where I was like, man, fuck her. No, like I was. I was hooked by it. I did like her early on. I was like, I get where she's coming from. And when she was like courting the knights to go up against Lancelot, I was like, <laughs> man, what you're doing is wrong because I love yeah. Lancelot, but I'm entertained. Like, I really want to see what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm not jo- like my favorite part in this movie was when she was like walking to camera thinking. And she's looking at the camera. Yeah. And it's like. It's obvious what she's what she's thinking, you know, and it's it's like we're in on her secret and she's cool. So like we're cool, too, because she's telling us the secret. It's one of my favorite things about musicals where you just get the inside of a character's head, Mm -hmm. you know, like time stops. Sense stops making sense or things Mm -hmm. stop making sense. And we're we're just into this like surreal, abstract world of what this person is thinking right now. Yeah, they, they sing it. They sing it or they tell us out loud and it just gets us closer into their mindset. It's like, okay, I know exactly what they're doing. I think her songs are like more fun generally. Uh, so I was, I, I enjoyed her parts. And I, then, I will say, I like talking about the things I like because there are a lot, there's a few things I don't like. I'm not crazy about the music in this movie. Yeah, I think it's more of the score that, I like like the Camelot song. I don't really like that song, but I like the music part of it, you know, and the the, the way that they like keep it in throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. But some of the songs, like the content of like the lyrics and stuff, I don't like like uh, the first one. 
Um, I wonder what the king is doing tonight. Like, I don't really like that song because I don't like nobility, knights, and lords and all that stuff. How, like, there's these, this certain family has certain amount of money and they have all this privilege and everything. I It makes me upset. You know what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I look at it as, um, I wonder what the king is doing tonight. It's really a song about how he's scared. Right, about getting right. Married, right. It's a, he's, he's nervous and he's scared, which is funny because he's king. He's the guy who pulled Excalibur out. And yet he's scared of a woman that he's never met before. Right. I think that was like, oh, you slayed a dragon or something like that. Like he was like, you slayed this. It's like, but you're scared of a woman. And it's like, yeah, that should be a funny, relatable song. Because I feel like to a certain extent, I feel like maybe a lot of guys feel that way. (laughs) Like, like, yeah, Yeah. there's a lot of shit I can do. But having a girlfriend and you disagree with her might frighten you a little bit. It's like, ah, I don't really know. Especially getting married to someone you've never met. It's right. It should be funny. But it's our introduction to King Arthur. Right. And I I don't think that it's like a really good introduction of King Arthur. Yeah, I don't think so. It should be. In it theory. should be, and like maybe if if it was like shot differently, because he's just singing in the trees, and like this movie was very expensive to make. But from this scene, I don't think you get to really see the the scale of of what it took to make this movie. It feels this part of the movie feels very cheap, and the beginning of the movie is when you're setting the tone for like the rest how the rest of the movie will be, right? And I don't think it does that very well at the beginning of this movie. It's interesting that you say that because one of the things, something else that I'm I'm kind of let down by, I don't think the music in this movie really engaged me. The score, the songs, and the choreography. None of those three aspects engaged with me at all. The songs, you know, some of them have catchy moments and the way they're inserted in some of the story beats are nice. Like, what do simple folk do? I don't like the song, but I like what the song symbolizes. I love its place in the film. Yeah. But same. for the actual song, I'm not going to listen to it after I'm outside of the context of the story. Right. Right. It's Which, it, for me, it's like this is because it's like these like rich people singing about what poor people must do. And it's it's it feels really annoying to, to hear people sing from that perspective and everything. For me, it's not even that. It's just it's not. There's nothing really catchy about it. There's nothing really like, <laughs> you know, like with Phantom of the Opera, I haven't, I, I swear to you, I haven't seen Phantom of the Opera since we've done the episode. We recorded the episode. And when was that? Like in March, mm-hmm. I think. But I still remember. It's bah, February. Bah, 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 bah. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like that's a, it's a catchy little melody. And there's like, <laughs> You know, like but, I still... but the way they they that you when you hear that score, what do you see? Right, you see like this this opera hall being brought back to life. Yes, right. So you have the image and the music, all the stuff working together. Yes. I don't think you get that in some of the songs in this one. It's very few and far between. I think it's the context of its placement in the story that it, the, the context of the story that makes the songs cool. Right. Like, uh, what do simple folk do? It's like, yeah, she's trying to she's trying to keep him preoccupied from thinking about 
all the shit that's going down between. Yeah, they're trying to save a failing marriage. And like you can tell that it's not working when it gets to the end of the song where it kind of descends into chaos, uh, which which I really like that part. Yes. And that's my favorite part of the song when they realize this is hopeless. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So Um, I like that part of it. But like it's like the if you look at the entire like if this was on like a timeline, right? Mm-hmm. And that you select the part of what the simple folk do. The part that I like is only at the very end of it. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> it's it's the story element. It's the realization that things are falling apart. Now, yeah. there, now the the score and the songs didn't land with me. But another thing that didn't land with me was the choreography, the dancing choreography. Um, because I think it's I think it falters. There's no real big dance numbers. There's no big um. Nothing like that. And I think a musical kind of needs that. For example, we were talking about, before I changed it, we were talking about I Wonder What the King is Doing Tonight. The opening song uh, where we learn about Arthur. One of the things that makes that number kind of bland, in my opinion, is he's just on trees sitting down and kind of getting back up and then sitting back down. Like there's no movement. There's no like choreography. There's no, like, you you know what I mean? Like he's not like, he sings about slaying a dragon, but like, why don't we see that? Or why don't we see him being, being brave and kind of confident standing tall. And then when he talks, when he thinks about marrying Guinevere, he's like, Oh my God, we don't see the anxiety. We don't see the tension that he's feeling. He's just singing and saying it. And that's the intro. But for example, like, the simple joys of maidenhood, kind of the the song after that, she, you know, Vanessa or uh, Guinevere is like in a carriage and she's just singing it, and there's not much not much to it, you know. She's like, I want to be admired, I want to be wanted, but she's singing in this carriage and there's really nothing much happening outside of that. And right. Obviously, not every song is going to have great bombastic settings and dance numbers. I I don't mind that. But, you know, this is the intro. This is our right. these are our character introductions. That's a really important part of a musical is getting to know that character, these characters. Mm-hmm. Brad and Janet, like that. We get who they are in that song, in that whole sequence. Sweet transvestite. We get it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think this movie knocks it out of the park with C'est moi. With Lancelot's introduction, yes. because that's what I wanted from the other two, you know, and that was the moment where I was like, yes, we're in musical land now. I love this. <laughs> he's, he's it starts with him, like getting the letter. Right. And it's like this crazy zoom in shot from like super far away. And it's like, yo, well, they actually put Franco Nero on top of this real castle to get this shot. You know what I mean? This wasn't yeah. on some studio set somewhere where you can like have fake snow and a fake tree where you can have your actor sit, sitting on top of it and then standing up and then sitting on top of it again. <laughs> this dude's like running around a castle and then he's on a boat singing about how great he is and you can see the reaction of the guy who's like with him like, uh-huh, yeah. That adds so much value to that scene. You know, seeing somebody else react to that song I'm glad we, we, we're moving on to that song because that kind of, you know, we we're talking about some of the things we don't like. I love Lancelot. And that <laughs> song, when he comes in, when he comes in with that song, 
it's like a straight injection of adrenaline like, or not adrenaline of just like love for the movie like it just yes that the movie shakes you up at that point it's like wake up wake up wake up <laughs> uh and look and i i was curious i was like wait is uh what's his name francis uh franco nero, franco nero. italian i was yes. like that's not a f- I, I mean i don't know too much but i was like that doesn't sound french but i don't care no. i don't i literally do not give a shit i don't care right. what it sounds like it does not bug me why because i love this guy he's great he's <laughs> fun he just gives the movie so much life and energy and I'm like, all right, I can't wait to see him and Arthur together. And yes. it doesn't disappoint. And that's when the I think that's the moment when the movie started picking up for you. That is the exact moment when the movie started picking up for me. The shot of him on the castle. Yes. It's just so extra, so over the top. And it's like, this is fun. I really like this now. This kind of energy right here. He brings a lot of energy in life. And look, even... He doesn't have that big choreography set number where everyone's dancing and stuff, but just him standing and running around the castle and the way he carries himself and his presence. Juxtapose that with Arthur and Guinevere's intro songs. The energies aren't even on the same wavelength. King Arthur and Guinevere are like down here and, and, and Lancelot. It's just like, I'm in there, you know, <laughs> it's just, it's different. And it makes yeah. it so much, it makes it so much fun. And that's when you wake up. And now here's the thing. It's, and you and I agree. That's when the movie really started like picking up for us. Roughly 35, 40 minutes into the movie is when Lancelot comes in. Think about that. 40 minutes, approximately. You're already through one third, almost one third through the movie. And now this character comes in and now you're feeling the filth. Now you're feeling that sense of energy. It's like. I don't like harping on length when it comes to movies, but this was a thing where it's like you guys needed to up the energy with Arthur and Guinevere and you had to bring Lancelot Lancelot in a lot sooner because he's definitely having the most fun and you guys definitely needed this, which kind of goes into my other point. That's like something I'm not too crazy about is the length of the movie. Yeah. And would would length really mean so is like, it's a pacing thing because if the movie was paced well, the length wouldn't matter. So it's like the, the length is, is really a, a symptom of a different problem, which is the pace. If you are subscribed to our Patreon, (laughs) Austin and I did a review on Avatar The Way of Water, which is like close to three hours and 20 minutes, 15 minutes, I believe. It's a long ass movie. Neither of us complained about it. Like, nope. so I, I know some people do, but for you and I, three hours, 15 minutes for that movie was not a waste. I was fine with it because the pacing was good. But I'm having a problem of length with this movie. And I think you're right. It's a pacing issue. It's not a length issue. And I think it comes down to the fact that or the the time being spent on certain beats isn't being used effectively. I just think that that beginning was botched. I think the pacing was off. I don't think I think we were drip fed very, very minor story beats. Um, It's not showy. It's not singing enough. It's I don't know. It's it's rough. Yeah. And it's it's uh, it. 
Moulin Rouge, which I don't think you've seen before. I've never seen it. But it kind of has like a similar uh, feel to it where like the beginning is very sad and the guy's like looking back of a of a greater time. And then it goes back to like the days of the Moulin Rouge and it's very colorful. Uh, it, it kind of has a similar beat to uh, Camelot, but Moulin Rouge, the way that they that that film is so visually like bananas or I, sh- I should say bonanzas because that's the thing you're trying to yeah. <laughs> get bananas. Uh, anyway it's so bananas that like it's fun all the way through right i don't think this one because like you have merlin right he's he's a wizard but i don't think that we we really get taken to a magical place with merlin no. which you want to talk about merlin yeah let's talk about merlin uh, how do you feel about merlin I don't care about Merlin. <laughs> you don't care about Merlin. I don't yeah. care. I I like when Arthur talks about him because Merlin has been a go-to person for Arthur for basically his whole life, but he's kind of slowly disappeared a little bit. And I like it when Arthur's like trying to remember, what did Merlin tell me? What did he teach me? I, I like that. He, in, in my opinion, he, Merlin has no presence in the film. I, I think Merlin's very, very interest, interesting. Um, I like how he might not even be real, how he's just <laughs> like this guy that is in the forest, but only when no one else is around Arthur and his, his advice that he gives him is like, wait, what did you, what did he actually tell you? Like, what oh, did he, yeah. what did he really teach you? Become a hawk. Become a hawk. What do you know as a hawk? Do you don't know as Arthur? I'm not really sure what he's supposed to learn from that. Or where it's like, are you the fish? I am in the fish. I am the water. I'm the fish. I'm like, wait, what the, f- what are you talking about? I'm not like a hundred percent sure of like what I'm supposed to learn from that. Mm-hmm. What Arthur is supposed to learn from that. But I do think Arthur needing clarity from Merlin and then not getting it. And then therefore not knowing what to do is pretty interesting in and of itself. Right. So he he's throughout the movie, he's like, oh, this is like what Merlin told me. Merlin told me I'd have a round table, but I didn't understand it at the time. OK, everything's going. Yeah, that was cool. That was I did like that. Yeah. He's like, OK, everything's going to plan. This is great. Lancelot, Merlin told me about you. He said you'd be uh, my right hand man. It, it's kind of like his foundation for for everything he does. Like, what did mm-hmm. Merlin tell me? And then it, when when like stuff doesn't go right he doesn't ever like think for himself he doesn't ever you know try to make a a change he just kind of just lets everything happen because he doesn't know what merlin's trying to teach him anymore yeah and he's like completely lost so it's almost like merlin kind of set him up for failure (laughs) but by being so helpful to him and then suddenly just disappearing I, I didn't think about it that way. It is kind of interesting. I don't ever feel like. I don't know. I mean, I, I watched the same movie you did. I don't know how you got to that conclusion. I mean, it make it makes sense. What you're saying makes absolute sense. But from what I saw, I was just like, I don't get Merlin's inclusion. Like, I get it in the very beginning. He's like, remember, remember how but why remember? It? Yeah, but. But when in that whole scene where he's in the where Arthur's in the forest by himself and he's like, yo, look at the fish, be like a hawk. And then I'm like, oh, there's going to something there's going to be a hawk like the, the hawk is a symbol. 
and there's actually going to be a hawk and that's going to like give Arthur an epiphany or something. But instead, it, when they're about to execute Guinevere, he's like, I wish I was a hawk so I could fly away. It's like, that's it? Yeah, I feel like, like he didn't really understand the lesson there. Because I, I think when he's talking to Guinevere and he shows, she shows, he shows her the map of England, he's like, oh, Merlin used to turn me into animals to get me to think like animals. And when I could be a hawk, I would fly over all these boundaries. These boundaries didn't exist for hawks. So that's what he goes into when he creates the Knights of the Round Table, where like there's no wars over boundaries. We all, because there are no boundaries, they're all made up, right? So it feels like he understood the lesson at one point, but then because he's the king and because he's the king of England, that's already like a contradiction, right? You've, you've, you have the Knights of the Round Table. It's a round table, there's no head. You're the king. There is a head. <laughs> Wherever you mm-hmm. sit, that's the head of the table. Your right-hand man, he's like second in command. That's Lancelot. So like there's mm-hmm. even though you have this round table and like these good ideas, the whole concept of monarchy and and all that is kind of incompatible with his like society of like mm-hmm. equals and democracy and all that. Yeah. And I I feel like he he never sees that and maybe that's what Marilyn was trying to teach him, but he just never got it. I don't know. It's something to think about. I'll say this. If that was the interpretation of the filmmakers. That that was if, my interpretation, but I don't I, know if that was what they were trying to say well, with I'll, it. No, I'll say this. I like your interpretation. And if that's what the filmmakers were going for, that's pretty clever. But I never got that. I didn't pay. I didn't pay too much attention to Merlin. Because number one, he's not really in the film as much. He's really in the film only like in two, three sections. Mm-hmm. Um, the actor's probably on screen for less than five minutes in a three-hour movie, <laughs> in a musical, no less. Look, look I, I, I'm not saying I have to be baby food, be baby uh, fed or spoon fed. Everything. This is a goddamn musical. It's a Hollywood musical, and it's about King Arthur. I don't know. Wait, wait a minute. The Green Arthur, the, or the Green Arthur, Green Knight was kind of weird too. No, no, but but dude, different execution, beyond different. different execution. Yeah. Um. Uh. David Lowry can get away with being a lot more dramatic and a lot more subtle because that that was his approach to the Arthurian legend. And in the film, it is a it it screams art house film. It wasn't. It was yeah. marketed as a Hollywood historical epic or whatever. But it's like no, that's a art house movie. <laughs> I will yeah. forgive. I will forgive that movie for its un, for its ambiguity. A- ambiguity. Yeah, that's that's part of it. But with something that's like this, you have like these big musical numbers that are like really obvious about like what you're supposed to feel about them, how the characters are feeling. But then you have something like Merlin that is like really ambiguous, so you're not really sure what the point of it was. Yeah. But because of the way I am, I made it make sense for me. And it, I'm, it makes me like the movie more. No, no, no. It absolutely does. I agree with what you're saying. What you're saying makes sense. And I'm like, I like that interpretation. I almost even, wish that was what the intention was. I just wish yeah. it had been put out there. Because if that was the case, it's like, imagine that scene where the three of them split up. Lancelot goes back to his castle. Guinevere goes with the women of the cloth or whatever and arthur goes back to his army who are lusting for blood 
And then he mm-hmm. goes up to Merlin. He's like, I didn't understand what you were selling me. It's like, I was trying to tell you that you were destined for failure. You know, that you couldn't stop what was coming. You had all these contradictions that you weren't fully aware of. And you set yourself up to, to for failure. And then Merlin leaves. And now Arthur is like mopey and he's like depressed. And then you've got this kid. He's like, I want to fight. I want to be a knight of the round table. And it ends on like that semi hopeful. It's like, hey, man. If anything positive can come out of this shitty experience, it's hopefully this legend of the Knights of the Round Table will live on. You know, it's kind of like the the ending of the Dark Knight, where it's like Harvey Dent kind of ruined his own image, his own leg potentially could have ruined his own legacy, but we're gonna keep the legend alive of Harvey Dent being like the White Knight. You know, the but that it's a lie though. It's a lie, but you know, if it can do some positive, you know. <laughs> and, 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 and that's the thing like, but and but and here and here's kind of where we disagree because you know sometimes i would argue a lie can do some positive but you're saying no a lie is a lie isn't that some cool like moral ambiguity that would have mm-hmm. existed in the film where it's like maybe maybe the lie can do some good yeah because like in this movie right he he keeps the lie that guinevere is is a faithful wife right that's yes. the lie that he protects at the cost of his round table. What he thought was his duty as king was to bring peace to the land and put an end to war, right? And to mm-hmm. do that, he made the round table. But because he's protecting this lie, he destroys the round table inadvertently, yeah. right? It, absolutely. And the the might might for right. Yeah, like that crumbles at the very yeah. end. He, you know, one of my favorite lines is just acknowledging how it's all disappeared. The knights under him now aren't there for the right thing. Therefore, they're, they want to flex. They want revenge. Uh, so and you and I can argue about the legitimate like the how how that lie should be implemented. If it should be exposed. It, what it, that would make great debate in conversation. Right. Mm-hmm. It's the same kind of conversation that we had about the Phantom, which that movie is very morally black and white. <laughs> right. Like, you know yeah. what the right and wrong thing are. There's like a sympathy for the Phantom. There's a, there's an understanding for him. And it's like, we had a great conversation about the Phantom himself. And you and I said, like, he's probably one of the best parts of the movie. I think the ambiguity with the relationship between the three characters, the three leads in this movie is the best part. I wish it would have gone a little bit further with what you said. Because if anything, it's like, Jesus Christ, like, it, it, it touches on themes. It touches on can, can righteousness and and duty really affect destiny? Is that even, does one individual have any real power over change or over an entire system, a monarchy? You know, it's like... The the king does have the most power and that's, that's the problem, mm-hmm. right? And he's using that power to like force the round the round table into the square hole and it just, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't fit because like you're, you're the king, you know, you have to relinquish that that whole structure of government, I think, right? Guinevere, I think Lancelot being with Guinevere is, and the other knights calling it out is a way to like get rid of Lancelot because none of them like Lancelot, mm-hmm. right? And Lancelot is second, he's the right hand, he's the king's right hand, right? Mm-hmm. So he's, if you make Lancelot look bad, that makes you look good. So you get, to, maybe you get to move up the table to, to, to be King Arthur's right hand man. Yeah. Um, another thing is 
the whole like boundaries thing, um, maybe that could apply to the relationships, right? Like maybe he should have uh, opened the relationship up with Guinevere. Maybe. I don't know. I, I think that's a little too far progressive for a movie from the sixties and a play from earlier on that, that I, I, I don't think, think Jack two- Warner would have gone for that. That's for sure. <laughs> he wouldn't, he would not have gone. He didn't even want Vanessa Redgrave in the movie. They were not, they were thinking about not bringing Vanessa Redgrave because she, because of her left, left wing politics. Yeah. I think that's a little too far ahead, but I think, um, there's a lot of potential in that, right. In that, in the reading of Merlin, of destiny, of duty, of the boundaries in a relation, in a marriage, in friendship, right? Like all that exists in the movie and it's, it's there, but I love what you said. I just wish the movie had kind of leaned into that in the five minutes that Merlin was on film. I did not get that idea communicated to me and maybe it was done purposely. Maybe the writers wanted to be subtle, but my argument would be, why are you being subtle? in a Hollywood, uh, in a <laughs> historical Hollywood musical where the, where the characters will literally stop what's happening <laughs> mid conversation and sing a song about how they feel. M- musicals do this. They, that's exactly mm-hmm. what they do. I don't like this conversation and I'm doing it to some song and dance and la 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 la. And then they go back to the real world. Do you see what I'm like? That's yeah. that's one of the issues I have with Merlin. I never got it. And your interpretation makes me like the ending. But I also think, man, how much better of a movie that that, that could have been if they had run with that idea and yeah. if Merlin had been used more effectively. So to me, I, I feel like the ending is like he, he really did miss the point of everything right like you're gonna go you're gonna tell tom to go run away and tell people about all the good stuff never mind all the hundreds of thousands of people that are about to die just tell people about the good stuff like how can you ever learn from it then you know and he feels like oh yes i've won because someone keeps the story alive but like people are about to die dude well, I think it, I don't know if it's like, I really want, I think it's more of just like the way I read it. It's, it's like, um, well, in his least... own head, he, he's one. Right. Yeah. But to me, as like the, the, the audience seeing this guy, it's like, damn, he didn't learn the thing he's supposed to. It's, yeah. but it, I, I feel like that would have been the point. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, ah, damn, he didn't learn at the end is it's like a, a, tragedy right like the, yeah, the greek well, this tragedy movie is a tragedy this movie mm-hmm. is tragic by nature it is it's it, just the construct of it right because if it was if it was a happy ending lancelot you know the story would have gone very differently lancelot would have forced himself on guinevere arthur would have defended her honor he would have killed lancelot and then at the end the the kingdom is happy like that kind of stuff right mm-hmm. uh, but this movie goes in a very different direction Right. We are we are happy when Lancelot saves Guinevere. Right. Even yeah. though it's bad for the Knights of the Round Table, it's bad for Arthur's uh, like his uh, his uh, his kingdom. Mm-hmm. But we're happy that it happens and it, it, we're happy that that happened. 
And I think that just goes to, um, to, to the complexities of it, you know? What's one thing I like about the movie is that there's a lot to talk about, right? Like, we just spent, like, how long talking about what Merlin was supposed to be in this movie? Mm-hmm. And he's only in the movie for five minutes? That's what makes the movie interesting. It's right. interesting to talk about, right? Yeah. And you look, you and I are bringing up criticism after criticism, and I hope we don't piss Nikki off. I hope that's not, not the goal. But well, I did I mean, enjoy we, this movie. <laughs> no, no, we we like I like talking about it. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I do think it could have been a little bit better. It could have improved in certain aspects. There are aspects of it that are holding me back from loving it. But I still come I, I mean, I have that central love triangle that I really love. And again, I kind of dismissed Merlin at first, but now that you're talking about it, it's like, oh, actually, that's that's kind of cool. I'm cool with that. We're going back and forth between things we liked and things we didn't like, because it's complicated. Mm-hmm. It's a complicated movie. One of the characters I loved hating was Moldred. Mordred? Mordred. Yeah. I loved hating him. He's a <laughs> little shit. He's such a little... I like when he, like, introduces himself, and he's like, oh, do you ever switch places with Guinevere? Where does Lancelot stand? Does he stand right here between you two? (laughs) I wanted to nut check that dude so bad. I hated him. Oh, yeah. But that's the point. Mm -hmm. Like, that's his purpose in the story. You're supposed to hate him. And it worked. He comes in almost at the three-quarter mark of the story. Like, he comes in super late in the story. And he has a very limited screen time. But the actor does a great job of convincing me that, that I hate this fucker. But that goes to a negative point. It's like, I wish he was in the story more. I wish yes, the movie yes, moved I... a lot faster. I wish it didn't take us 30 minutes to, to have Arthur and Guinevere in the forest. I... Well, I should say the musical, because he died before the movie was ever made. The musical came out in 1960. And uh, the person I'm talking about is John F. Kennedy. Big, big fan of yes. Camelot the musical betrayed me he's gonna he's convincing people to fight to to turn against me i'm like why didn't we get that why did we see that that could have been a great song you know what you know what that that was the song in the musical no it was mordred had two songs in the musical at least two songs in the musical you'll never find a virtue on statusing my quo or making my blz bubble burst let others take the high road, I will take the low. I cannot wait to rush in where angels fear to go. With all those seven deadly virtues, free and happy little me has not been cursed. He has zero in this movie. And he's, he's, the, he's the singer. Like, all these people that are in this movie, not singers. Except no. for... David Hemmings. He's actually a singer and they don't have him. They don't give him a single fucking song. How do you have a musical where the villain doesn't have a song? You got to have a song with the villain. Imagine the Lion King. A fucking plant has a song (laughs) in Little Shop of Horrors. A plant! You have a, a plant that has multiple songs an academy award nominated song or i think it won <laughs> it didn't win because of uh top gun oh the, oh that's right take my breath away yeah. but no no but but again though you got to have the villain sing 
And yeah. Moldred needed a song. He needed a song where he's conspiring. He's like, I'm going to ruin Arthur's life for this and this reason. I'm going to fuck with them. And he needed a song where he's conspiring. He's getting the knights together or he's getting other people together. It's like, we're going to screw over Arthur. We needed that. And okay. I said earlier, I love the love. I love the love triangle. Yes, the movie dedicates spending their time with its time with Guinevere, Arthur, and Lancelot. The movie does, and it has songs between them. That's great. But you have three hours. The villain should have had a song, and the villain should have come in sooner. How how are we like almost two hours into the movie and Medred Meldred or like shows up then? That's just not. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think that's great. You got lucky. That the little dialogue he did have and the actor that you casted did a phenomenal job. He's like an afterthought. And I'm just like, oh, no, you had to have him in there. You had to give him something. He he doesn't even come in until the yeah the first two hours of the movie. And it's like, so Arthur's just going to let this guy be here. There's no scenes of, of him trying to, like, get him to, like, be a good person there's, a song so, yeah the, he, he should have a song he does have two songs in the stage production fie on goodness <laughs> and okay. seven deadly virtues um but <sighs> it, i think in in this film right not only do you need to have him have his song i think like that's that's like number one he should have a song he's the villain yes the musical number two why are you why is arthur just letting this guy hang around he says it's because he wants him to be the next king, right? Yeah. So I feel like we should see a scene of him trying to convince him to not be a jerk. But we only get that scene in the forest. And that's like after Mordred has essentially caused the Knights of the Round Table to party so hard that the, the table physically breaks. <laughs> and, guess, and guess who goes in and sees it? King Arthur. And what does he do? Nothing. He bitches out. Yeah, and, and poor Percival's like, no, I beg you to stop. <sighs> and you know what I dislike is the fact that King Arthur says, you know who says blood is thicker than water? People who want to take advantage of you. And he's like, prove me right or prove me wrong. Or he's like, prove to me that you're not someone trying to take advantage. Because you could either get rubbed on or rubbed off which is like a which is like a very ambiguous threat he's like if you comply a lot of good stuff can come your way but if you fuck with me i won't hesitate to hurt you emptiest threat in the movie and he doesn't follow up on it there's no scene where he's trying to like reconcile with his son where he's trying to show him the ways of what it means to be a knight no oh goodness gracious it makes arthur seem impotent it makes him seem weak i like his ideas in the beginning but then he just kind of like lets things happen but maybe that's that's the point because he doesn't know really what to do unless you know you have this wizard in the forest telling him what to do (laughs) i don't know it's 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 frustrating to to watch like the 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 fun part with with lancelot like you could have had that with mordred and have like a fun villain song uh, and that would have been okay. That would have been more entertaining to to watch than just to see uh, Arthur's table 
fall apart and him do nothing about it except go into the woods. Uh, and just to, to try to meet Merlin, I, I don't get it. This movie has a long song list. And most of the songs aren't, I don't feel, are used as properly. I mentioned that earlier. I don't like a, The Lusty Month of May. I don't like that song. Sure, you're kind of painting Guinevere as someone who still wants to be lusted over. Sure. But I don't need an entire song, The Lusty Month of May, for that. You you could like the song, because I know you like the song. Oh, it's it's very fun. But <laughs> but I, would you have preferred that song or Mildred's song? I think there's a number of songs I would ditch before The Lusty Month of May. If if I were in charge of this movie and what songs do you get to keep? You'd get rid I, of How to Handle Woman. I'd get rid of How to Handle Woman. I would get rid of that song too. I I, I get what he's I get kind of what he's saying. I, I, I think a lot of people can relate to that idea. I don't need a song. Yeah, it could have just been like a, a thing that, that he just says and then all right, next one. I don't like what do the simple folk do, but I feel like you kind of need some kind of moment between them where they don't mm. where they like love each other but like something's something's wrong the lusty month of may uh follow me in children's chorus which i forgot but it's on the song list how to handle a woman take me to the fair it's kind of a fun song especially since guinevere i really like that against, one yeah that yeah. was cool <laughs> if i ever if ever i would leave you definitely need to keep that in oh, that's yeah. an important song um what do the simple folk do I like the song. I, no, no, no. I don't like the song. I like what the song... I like the place where the song is. And I like the realization at the end. But I don't need an entire song. Or maybe just you could have punched up the song a little bit. Or have it like one verse. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe one verse. I Loved You Once in Silence. I think it's great. Guinevere and Essentially. But I just don't... Some of those songs just don't hit. And I again, I saw the, the movie a few days ago. It should be in my head. Bro... How long has it been since we talked about Little Shop of Horrors? But that's like still- that's a that's like legendary Alan Menken. All right, he that's all he does is write songs that get stuck in your head. I know, man. And then he'll just rewrite the song as a different name, and you you still get stuck in your head. Like somewhere that's even, green is part of your world. Yeah, and even song. Skid Row, which I wasn't crazy about when we when we talked about that movie. Even I still like that song now. Oh yeah, this the, the music here isn't as as much of yeah. an earworm, but I do like the fun musical stuff. So the Lusty Month of May is like a really fun song, and I enjoy it as I'm watching it. Is it would it have benefited the story as much as a Mordred song? Probably not, but it's in the movie, and I liked it, so it's it's hard for me to to say. Yeah, I would cut this song for a Mordred song when there's other songs in the movie that I th- I did not like. And I didn't think that they took advantage of the medium that is the movie musical. Mm-hmm. I would rather lose those songs, but they're kind of important to the story. I just think that with three hours long, you definitely needed to be a bit more efficient with the, the scenes that you're filming, the scenes at hand. Mm-hmm. How do we affect how do we set up so we get. Arthur and Guinevere meet a lot sooner. I think that that would have been important. Instead of having, I wonder what the king is doing tonight, which with Richard Harris just singing on a tree branch and 
the simple joys of maidenhood where Vanessa Redgrave is just singing in her carriage. I'm like, maybe you could, again, I know this is going to the musical aspect of it. Like the, mm. maybe you could have written a song where it's like, let's take both of those songs. Let's consolidate those two songs into one. And maybe you have a scene where Arthur is singing, like he's really scared of being married and you cut and you, you intercut that with Guinevere saying like, I don't want to get married. Right. Like these these two people that are scared of marriage. Marriage is the big thing. They're going to get married to each other. And they're like, what? You know, she's in a carriage. He's walking through the forest and then they randomly meet up and it's accidental. And you have these two people that are on the same that are going to get married on the same path of I'm scared and I don't want to. That, that's fun. <laughs> that's playful. You could have started it with a bang, some some life, you know, some yeah. bam, bam, you know, I don't I mean, look, I don't dislike the movie. Nikki. Believe me, I don't dislike the movie. <laughs> I don't. I think what's just frustrating is I like the foundation. They got the most important part of the movie down. The most important part. For me, mm-hmm. the most important thing they nailed. Guinevere, Arthur, and Lancelot. They nailed it. When other movies have great songs, faster pace, they fuck up that, that love triangle. Kind of Phantom of the Opera. Even that movie that I liked did not nail that love triangle this yeah movie i, I does. think uh guinevere is a more interesting character than christine oh, oh over over Kristen or what was her name christine christine hell yeah you know and you know no no disrespect to em to emma emma Rosen. rosenberg it's not her fault that her character no, is boring at all <laughs> and no no fault to the the ralph you know the the no it's not their fault but lancelot and guinevere are way more interesting <laughs> <laughs> uh you nailed that but some of the other things around it you kind of lacked in and i'm like oh man if you had punched up some of the songs if you had taken some out if you had done some pacing things flipped some things around like you could have had an absolute banger you know like people don't and you had everything behind it you built a castle you had a great cast you had a lot of money. The cinematography was there. That scene where Arthur and Guinevere are getting married. Beautiful. That's some motherfucking cinema right there, bro. <laughs> when Where the hall is all blackened out and you've got the candles and you've got the light shining on them. Beautiful. Beautiful mm-hmm. cinematography. But <sighs> just I, yeah. I just see a, a little missed potential. Um, oh, definitely, definitely. I get excited thinking about what it could have been, you know, because I could, I could very much see in another timeline if they had made some changes. This could have Camelot could have been as big as you know, like um, <clears throat> the Sound of Music or some of these other ones. A giant, yeah. expensive, highly high budgeted Hollywood historical epic musical about Arthur, King Arthur. Mm-hmm. Holy shit, man! I mean. And there's a reason I, that the musical was so popular, you know, like they don't they don't take musicals that nobody cares about and turn them into movies. You know, <laughs> Absolutely. Like there's a reason they they bought the rights. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I, that's the only thing I'm kind of like kicking the dirt, just like, man, what could have been? But I, I still like the movie. And I, oh, yes, it kept me entertained. I'll tell Very you, Very entertaining. Like the, like the, the whole climax for me was amazing when they save Guinevere and Arthur's like relieved. Isn't that fun? Yeah, like it, it's so it's so cool how like it's like a heroic moment, right? But immediately after, it's like eighty of our guys are dead. 
<laughs> and you see, and, like, the families mourning the bodies. So it's not, like, yeah. a clean, like, yeah, he did it. It's like, okay, he saved Guinevere, but, like... At what cost? At what cost? Like, King Arthur, you're the king. You could have stopped this. You know? Like, you, you, your inaction is hurting everybody. It's making everything worse. Um, so it's like that's that's is the message to me like his inaction is making everything worse but i don't know if if the if we're supposed to look at that so that's the part where it kind of it's kind of um a miss for me is like i don't know if my interpretation is good but my interpretation makes me like the movie more so yeah, and I, I, and I agree with you. I mean, I, I don't know if your interpretation was the intent of the filmmakers and screenwriters. Maybe yeah. it wasn't, and if that's the case, like, I, I'll like, tell you, I'll tell you what. My interpretation of the movie is very different from a, a very famous person who liked this movie. Well, I should say the musical because he died before the movie was ever made. The person I'm talking about is John F. Kennedy. Whoa! <laughs> what? Yeah. In fact, oh. I think that like Camelot is kind of a nickname for the Kennedy administration. It's so funny because there's this uh, film historian called Richard Kennedy. Is it Richard Kennedy? Hold on. Matthew Kennedy. You read a book on um, on this kind of period of film, Roadshow, The Fall of Film Musicals in the 1960s. And he did a Q&A about Camelot. And it was hard for me to find the Q&A because... Every time I would type in Matthew Kennedy Camelot, a bunch of freaking JFK documentaries would pop up. Because <laughs> um, that was Kennedy's nickname for his administration, either after his death or whatever, it was, was Camelot. He loves that quote at the end where he's like, oh, just for a moment, a utopian society was created. and We want to keep that dream alive. That is my favorite. That's what I take to heart. Where, where to me, it's like, yeah, but what happened right after that? You're not telling this kid to learn and do better. He's You're just teaching him to think about this thing that happened in the past that was was a fantasy even then. Mm-hmm. Like by the time the, the Knights of the Round Table was formed, it was already, there was already a lie being upheld, you know? Arthur's already had his blind eye to to Guinevere and Lancelot and didn't ever address it and that just made everything worse. You know, it's it's complicated, but it's fun to talk about. It's fun to think about. No, no, and that's and that's I think that's what we mo- we meant by interesting. It's mm-hmm. there's there's a there's like nuggets in there of brilliance of like, oh my God, like this is great. This is great execution. Uh this these are great ideas. I wish the execution were better. I mean I I mean and look I don't know if you finished it, but this, the kind of the way King Arthur deals with this situation between Guinevere and Lancelot is very similar to another plot that came out in a TV show very recently. That's also fantasy. Do you know what I'm talking about? What are you talking about? House of the Dragon. I never watched it. Huh? I never watched it. I guess mild spoilers. It's okay. But King. Okay. So we're talking about King Arthur's. Uh, in action, mm-hmm. right? His indecisiveness on what to do with the situation because in, in the people in the kingdom know, the knights know that Guinevere is sleeping with Lancelot, that they're a thing. But Arthur's like, 
I'm not going to acknowledge it. Hey, I'm going to make rules that are going to make it harder to kill knights and stuff like that because you need evidence, which there will be none. He says that, (laughs) which there will be none. Um, It reminds me very, very much of King Viserys from House of the Dragons. If you've seen that show, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you don't, basically, it's the exact same thing that King Arthur is doing. There's like a very clear lie in House of the Dragon that nobody is buying. There's a lie that is very clearly a lie. Everybody knows it. But King Viserys will stand by his family. And he says, if I hear you guys talking shit about my family and this lie, which we all know is actually true. Like, like, it, like it's 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 mm-hmm. very clearly a lie. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's very clearly a lie. Like, we all know this. But he's like, if any of you guys keep talking about this and making these grave accusations, I will cut out your throat. And someone literally accuses them. It's the exact same, like, storyline, almost, of the king that won't, that won't, that doesn't want to acknowledge this. The lie in, in, in here is, like, really benign. Like, yeah, one of your loves Lancelot. You know, I know that we're married, but like clearly, she's happier with him. So we're we're getting a divorce, or we're opening the marriage, or something. I don't know. It, it could. It doesn't have. So many people didn't have to die for this, you know. <laughs> but it's because he's king, right? And because the king is like the most important person. So his like nobody cares if like the the townspeople's wives are cheating, right? Like they're not going to go to war. Yeah, it doesn't over, matter. They don't. But because this guy's king, and because of what it means to be king, then everything's worse but like what's the root of the issue is like maybe there shouldn't be kings and stuff no that that's the exact no no that's the exact same thing that house of the dragons address it's like there's this lie and normally this isn't an issue but because it's king Viserys and his daughter and it deals with the lineage of who's the next king that's where it becomes a problem that's where suddenly everybody is like taking sides so i i if you've seen house of the dragon you know exactly what i'm talking about if you haven't there's a small plug for the show go watch it it's pretty great. <laughs> cool um let's you you want to move into some of the uh behind the scenes yeah let's do that real quick so some of the behind the scenes of this movie it was made kind of at the tail end of like when these big movie musicals were were made uh this historian film historian matthew kennedy talks about how this film was kind of like you know we we had successful musicals blockbuster musicals mary poppins my fair lady the sound of music Uh, he says convinced hollywood that musicals were hot commodities and guaranteed money makers camelot disabused hollywood of that notion and (laughs) became a red flag as other studios had already committed enormous resources to other expensive musicals it's one of the last in a long line of Broadway to Hollywood musical adaptations before the film musical genre went into a deep and protracted decline. And he says that like this movie wasn't like a super bad financial failure. It wasn't like a super bad, like it wasn't super, uh, it wasn't as ill received critically as some of these other movies were after it. Like there's apparently there's a musical with, with Clint Eastwood. Paint your wagon. 
Have you ever heard of Paint Your Wagon? No. Did you know Clint Eastwood was in a musical? No, I did not. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, all right. So this one, he's basically said this one wasn't as like bad as those other ones, but it was like the beginning of the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he talks about how it stands in graphic contrast to films like Cool Hand Luke, The Graduate, In Cold Blood, and Bonnie and Clyde. And they were all released in 1967. And I believe we talked about this in the first part of our episode. Camelot really sticks out compared to these other movies. It's definitely very strange. And and the movie, yeah, I, you're right. Like, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. It wasn't the worst kind of film. I, it was number 10 at the box office. It was up there. I think it was number 7. No, I think I think it was number 10. We I th- we talked about this in the first part. Yeah, but you forgot some of it, and now I, I, let I me did. double let me double check. Let me double check. Yes, it was number ten in oh. North America. It was number ten. You were right. Gotcha. It wasn't a financial disaster or anything, but I mean, I don't think it was the hit that it was supposed to be. I right. think they, they they really thought that they were making the next Sound of Music or that next musical banger. That's just like, damn, you know. People mm-hmm. are people are gonna die for this movie, you know, and it's like, well, not really the case. People enjoyed it, but it sticks out like a sore thumb in the other line in the in the filmography of the year. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And there was an enormous amount of money spent on the creation of the sets for this movie. Uh, like they actually built some like to scale castles and stuff. I don't know, not to scale, because that'd, that'd be ridiculous. But they definitely... No, but like over 100 feet tall. That is... That's a lot of money for, for a musical. Or not even for a musical. That's just a lot of money to spend on building a set. <laughs> yeah. Because what are you going to do afterwards? Like reuse it for like a different movie, maybe? I mean, Warners did do that a little bit with like Casablanca, I remember. But mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's a big set to like have to rebuild and like have to put away you know yeah they they built it in in burbank and this the producer right jack warner we talked a little bit about jack warner he's one of the warner brothers also not the greatest of people apparently he he kind of tricked his brothers into selling their part of warner brothers so that he became like the sole owner of Warner Brothers. Did you know that? No way. <laughs> Wait, he tricked his brothers? Yeah. He. Okay, so this is the second paragraph on his Wikipedia. As co-head of productions at Warner Brothers Studios, Warner worked with his brother, Sam Warner, to produce the technology for the film's first. For, for the film industry's first talking picture, The Jazz Singer, 1927. After Sam's death, Jack clashed with his surviving older brothers, Harry and Albert. He assumed exclusive control of the company in the 1950s when he secretly purchased his brothers' shares in the business after convincing them to participate in a joint sale of stocks. No way. Yeah. Um, He's also like a very like famous conservative republican he named names uh <laughs> during the the whole like house of un-american activities thing 
activities community. Uh, and he didn't like Vanessa Redgrave because she was too liberal for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he... <sighs> a lot of things didn't go his way during the production of this movie. Yeah. Like the cast. Like he wanted Julie Andrews and Richard Burton to be in this movie. But Richard Harris, Dumbledore, the first Dumbledore, King Arthur, he mm. really, 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 really wanted to be in this movie. Like the, the story that I keep seeing is that he paid people to like hold signs saying Richard Harris is better than Richard Burton for King Arthur. And then when Vanessa Redgrave was cast, who's who's I believe she's like five nine, five ten, he he sent a letter saying how tall Richard Burton was, like five four, and how tall he was, six two. So like, hey, look, I'm taller than him. Pick me. <laughs> Pick me. Um Jack Warner kind of like made friends with Julie Andrews and he tried to get her to come onto the movie. But as I said before, she was kind of busy with other stuff. She also hates Richard Harris because they were in a movie together called Hawaii and she didn't like him. And he said about her, I, I have never met somebody I've hated so much. Paraphrasing, but that's what he said. He Wait, used the word he said hate. That? He said the word hate about Julie Andrews. Whoa. Richard Harris kind of has a reputation about being kind of a, a, a what do you call it? A troublemaker? A hellraiser, I think some people like to describe. He was on a talk show, that a, a clip from when he was like younger and he's on a talk show and he has like a big bruise on his face because he got into a fight in a bar. And he's like, I always find myself in, in fights at bars for some reason. I spend some kind of, a large portion of my life in fights, I suppose. One tries to avoid them. Yeah. But I'm, I, remember the, I remember in New York, about the, the last time I did your show, actually, I was in New York, I got into a fight in a bar and the thing was going, one thing, one word bothered another, there was a fight, a punch up and all that. But I thought, he says, getting too rough for you, Harris, you're too old, you're 40, you can't do this anymore, you see? <laughs> so I thought, well, the only way to do, the, the only I can do is get out of it. So I, the row started and I jumped over the bar and I hid behind the bar because punches were going like mad. And I hid behind the bar and I said, let them fight, you see? And there was a guy beside me, crouching too. <laughs> and I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm ducking Harris. <laughs> <laughs> And the two fellas who started the fight were both under the bar, hiding behind the bar from each other, while everybody else was killing each other. <laughs> he got into a fight with uh, the guy who plays Mordred. No way, really? He, yeah, he punched him at a party. No way, he punched Mordred? Yeah. And you know what? They became friends. Because there's another story of, of him being so miserable making this movie and him hating Warner Brothers and Hollywood. Wait, Richard Harris making this movie? Yeah, Richard Harris. The movie that he campaigned himself to be in. <laughs> he, he was having a miserable time? Yeah, he was having a bad time. Cause, Why? Well, because I'm assuming it's because a Warner Jack Warner didn't like him, right? Because mm. Jack Warner wanted Richard Burton, and mm. the director of this film, Joshua Logan, wanted Richard Harris for some reason. <laughs> Even though Harris wasn't a singer, but he wanted him, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, he has a bit of issues with the producer who never wanted him and there's there's a story of him take 
of Jack Warner taking Harris over to the big Warner Brothers water tower. And he's like, you see that? See what that says? When that says <laughs> Harris, then you get to decide how this movie goes. <laughs> that, Jesus that's like the, Christ. Yeah. But so apparently he's like miserable and he's he hates being in this movie and everything. And then he makes friends with the guy who plays Mordred, Jack or David Hemmings, and convinces him to like not to jump in a pool that, that doesn't have any water in it. I keep seeing that story everywhere. So somebody told it. Maybe it's true. Either way, this dude got into a fight with everybody. Richard mm-hmm. Harris did. Uh, Ken, the, the historian that I talked about before, um, he says this was Jack Warner's swan song, and he threw an enormous $12 million at it. Logan didn't know what to do with all of that. His prolific close-ups grew annoying over too long. Oh, he's... This he's taught, he, Kennedy isn't like the biggest fan of this movie either. Um, and he said that we, the, all the close-ups of the movie were annoying over a three-hour long running time. Uh, the round table was kind of a anticlimactic. As this movie is released in theaters and stuff, Jack Warner ends up selling like his stake in Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. I I read how much he actually got. Do you want to say it? It's such a stupid amount. What? Thirty two million. He sold Warner Brothers for thirty two million. His share, his share of like that's what that was his payout when he sold like his shares. Like when because this was the last movie he worked on. He was like, I'm not doing this anymore. Uh, with production underway, Jack Warner decided that Camelot would be his last film he would produce for the studio. On November 14th, 1966, he sold a substantial share of studio stock to Seven Arts Production. The sale was finalized on November 27, which totaled to approximately $32 million in cash. $32 million in, in 1966. That's a lot of that's money. A lot. That's Dude, a that, lot of money. That's more money than... Okay, let's see. Bonnie and Clyde is a Warner Brothers movie. He he hated that movie, by the way. He did not want that movie to be made. And when that movie was so successful, it's kind of like, well, Jack Warner doesn't know what's successful or not. <laughs> I think that's part of it, too. Is like he was kind of losing power. Like, he, it wasn't his way or the highway anymore. People were like, yeah, whatever. We don't need you anymore. So, okay, so... You're old. A Warner Brothers top two movies at the box office of 1967... Uh, Bonnie and Clyde with 22 million and Camelot with 12 million. And he gets 36 million for selling his shares of, of Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. Do you want to know how much it is? How much is it? In today's currency? How much? $305 million. Jesus. Insane. David Zaslov, he's the head of, um, what is it? Of um, Warner Brothers now. His stock options was two hundred fifty million. That's how much he has in stock options. Two hundred fifty million dollars. This dude in sixty six made three hundred and five million. Disgusting. That's rich people for you. Yeah. Another good thing that Camelot did is got rid of Jack Warner from Warner Brothers. He, I guess. He, I mean, he doesn't sound like a very pleasant fellow. No, no, no. Especially screwing over your brothers. I would have killed him if, if I was his brother. <laughs> 
Like I'm going all like I'm do I'm going all Lion King with this. <laughs> Long live the Warner Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um He also hated Vanessa Redgrave. He like called her a communist dis- despairing like as a as a way to insult her. Yeah. It's uh... And she's like one of the best parts of this movie. Yeah, she was like one of the best parts of the movie, bro. Like, get off her about it. Something I did want to talk about real quick. Uh, not so much about the main game, but kind of what came afterwards. The movie was nominated for a few awards. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know this, but the movie was nominated for five Academy Awards, and it won three of them. It won for it was nominated for best sound, original song costume design, cinematography, and art direction. And it won for best original sound score, best costume design, and best art direction. And at the Golden Globes, Richard Harris, Vanessa Redgrave, Frederick Lowe, like the original score. Uh, They got, they won for best song. Franco Nero got got nominated for most promising newcomer, (laughs) which they were right with that one. Well, the thing is, this was, the year after Django came out, like the original Django. It's so crazy. Like he, he goes from playing Django to Lancelot. Lancelot. <laughs> yeah. It's very, it's weird that the best original song, If Ever I Should Leave You, won at the Golden Globes because that was not an original song. That was from the original musical. No, but I think it's the Golden Globes. So the rules... Uh, might be different because I know with Academy Awards you need to write an original original song if you're at if you're in that ad- if you're adapting from a play or something, right? Yes, but I, I think that's for Academy Awards. I don't know if it goes for Golden Globes. Um, I don't know. There might have been a rule that they introduced later, but I think that's the only song that won like this. Hmm. Okay. That's so funny. It's a good song, I think. No, it, it is a good song. It It is an important song because he's like, well, all right, if I'm going to leave you, well, it's not going to be in the spring. Because that's your favorite month. It's also, not going to be in the maybe, summer. Maybe Lusty Month of May does have story importance then. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> it's not worth it, in my opinion. It's just like, eh. And it, it, sound, it sounds like I'm being overtly negative. I'm just... You know, this could have been a banger. This could have been a grand slam. Yeah. Uh, could have but, been. Oh, well. It's okay. All right. Uh, Want to move on to quotes, Austin? Yes. Let's move on to quotes. In lieu of a five-star system, we summarize how we feel about a movie with a quote from the movie. It can be our favorite quote. It can be a quote that made us laugh. Or it could be a quote that summarizes the conversation we just had. George usually goes first, and George usually breaks the rules. And I did again. Um, I have two quotes. Now, they don't really mean, they don't kind of signify how I feel about the movie. They're just two quotes that I really liked. Because again, I I like the foundation. I think you've got a great solid foundation. I like the characters. I like what they're going through. I like the, the kind of the overall conflict, right, of duty versus passion. I love all that. I think it's great. And these are just lines that kind of stuck with me after watching the movie. I was like, I like that line. I could get it tattooed on me. No, (laughs) Uh, not so much that, but they're just lines that kind of stuck with me and I really enjoyed it. So the first one, 
is from uh, Mordred. Or no, it's not. It's King Arthur when he's with Mordred at the forest at night, right? Before shit goes down. And Mordred's like, this is where Merlin taught you, is it not? And Arthur's like, oh, yes, it is. There are times when the only vacation spot in the world is the past. And I was like, that's a great line. I feel that, man. I get that 100 percent. And I feel like a lot of people feel that way, too. Yeah. And and it made me feel for Arthur, you know? Mm hmm. Uh, the second one is uh, also just another line that I thought was really cool. And it just kind of summarizes the shitty situation that they're in and kind of the what's hanging over Arthur's head. Right. It's at the end in the forest again between Lancelot, Jenny or Guinevere and Arthur. And Jenny's like, Arthur, we want to return with you. Let us pay for what we've done. And Arthur's like at the stake. No, for what end? justice they've forgotten justice they want revenge revenge the most worthless of causes it's too late and i like that it's it shows that arthur is still wanting to do the right thing but he's not dumb like he realizes that there's no turning back that everything he's fought he's fought for is gone it can't the round table's gone there's no point. He loves Jenny and he wants her back and he wants Lancelot back too, but there's no way it's happening. And he's like revenge, like the most worthless of causes. I love that. And I love that the fact that in this love triangle, it's not about revenge. It's not about getting the girl or keeping her away or, you know, it's, it's not about that. It's about trying to make the most of a shitty situation. It's good. Good quotes. Good quotes. Yeah, it's the writing's there, man. You know, oh, the yeah, writing is there. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, some other stuff around it. Yeah, yeah. I guess I'll do two quotes too. There's one quote that made me laugh. I had to like watch it again. Uh it's I think it's the way that they say it too. Where King Arthur is with Lancelot and he's trying to tell him about a picnic. And Lancelot's like, What? Uh it's a custom we have. This is England, you know, and this is a season for gathering flowers. And Lancelot's like, Knights? gathering flowers <laughs> and king arthur's defensively is like well someone has to do it it's good for a civilization to have gentle hobbies and i'm like ah i like that mm-hmm. um and then the other one i i have is is uh, there's there's one line that's very introspective from lancelot's pers- pers- introspective of lancelot's point of view and it's when uh it's called him Percival, but his name isn't Percival. It's uh, Pele, Pele, Pelinor. I think the the knight that kind of joins the the table after Lancelot. Uh, and he's like, "Dude, that guy's so annoying," you know. And Lancelot's overhearing this, and he says, "All fanatics are irritating, Pelinor, and I am a fanatic, and I don't enjoy it any more than you." Uh, and yeah. that whole line about being a fanatic is is sometimes I feel like I'm a fanatic about like movies and stuff, and I like will explain how I feel about stuff, you know, ad nauseum. <laughs> um, and and in that moment, I can like kind of relate to Lancelot, you know. No, that's a great quote from Lancelot. I love that one too, and it's like. I liked it. I like that moment because it's like you guys aren't you guys are being mean to him. Like you're you're not you're not making an effort to try to understand where he's coming from. 
or why he feels this way. You're just mm-hmm. judging him. Like, stop it. Be better than this. Poor Lancelot got picked on so much when he first arrived. It's like, leave this guy alone. And then he wins them over when he he, he saves Dinadon's life. But I don't think he ever wins them over. I think they always hate him. Like, he only wins over Guinevere. Well, they, they like him. Because remember, everyone's them. kneeling when he's. Everyone's kneeling. Oh, when that's he right. Walks they do away. kneel. But yeah. But what turns it around is the lie. Is the lie. You know the fact that Guinevere's with him. You know the first line that the guy says when when after the four year time gap, it's like, "Ah, oh, you sleep with the wife or or the the queen or something." Yeah, but I feel like all those dudes want to be with with Guinevere. They're just jealous. oh, they do. That's the whole reason they're they're trying to fight Lancelot in the first place. Yeah, I don't know. They could have made that a little bit more clear, but that's that maybe that I'm reading too much into it. But whatever, it's it's all good. I enjoyed this movie. Um, I'm glad that we we covered it. Uh, did we insane. break like, the streak of a musical that you didn't like? I don't think so. No, you still like this? No, no, no. I still like this. I would put this in the category of like. Mm. Um, not love no not love like because there have been some musicals that i love right Mm -hmm. man little shop of horrors is still like the top one right Mm -hmm. this is probably around the same place with phantom of the opera like i like both of them and Mm -hmm. i think fan of the opera is really really fun Mm -hmm. it just outside of the phantom it doesn't have too much else happening like in the story that's like really good to chew on if that Mm -hmm. makes sense like it doesn't have enough meat on its bones Mm -hmm. um and this movie has the opposite. It has a lot of meat for us to like really dig in, but it just it's missing some of the seasoning. It's missing some of the other <laughs> things that kind of make a musical great. The dancing, the songs, the, the, the you know, some of the villainous characters, the choreography, like those are things that are certainly missing. Uh, and maybe just being a, a bit quicker, you know, just being a, just being lear- learning how to consolidate your time. Yeah, it's like, OK. We have three hours to tell this story. What's how can we accomplish that? And again, not giving the villain a musical. The song is like, whoa, bro, come on. Like, you got to. <laughs> but I still I don't dislike it. I like it. If again, gun to my head, I have to go with don't like or like. I'd go with like easily, easily. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. Because of the love triangle. I can't tell you how many times I've seen love triangles fucked up. But when you do them right, you feel bad for the characters. Sim- you sympathize. You don't know who to go for. <gasps> no, King Arthur. He's he's trying to do the right thing. He's you know he's 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 he wants to be good. But Lancelot. Oh, he's awesome. He's handsome. Ah, you feel conflicted, you know. And I still think it nailed the love triangle by far. It, in that regard, this the love triangle in this movie beats the shit out of the Phantom of the Opera. A hundred percent. Not that it's a competition, but but yeah. So I, I definitely I don't dislike the movie. I don't. I just again, hindsight's twenty twenty. And if they had addressed some of this stuff, it would have been a better movie, but I still I'm still happy I watched it. Yeah. And I feel it, like the conversation you and I had was really insightful. And mm-hmm. it's like, man, what could have been? Yeah. I, I feel like I definitely enjoyed this movie more than I did revisiting Hook. Because I feel like Hook is also is very, really, like the pacing is really, it's not really good in that movie. 
but maybe it's because this one's like new to me. I really in- enjoyed this movie. No, absolutely. And, and it's, and more than sorry. anything, you know, like the, the point of having this podcast is to talk about movie in a way that's like uh, productive. I think it gives mm-hmm. the movie like a fair chance. Cause I read some of the reviews of this movie and they're just being mean. And it's like, I mean, yeah, but there's other stuff about the movie too. Like you didn't talk about Vanessa Redgrave at all. You didn't talk about Jack Hem- or I keep calling him Jack, but like the guy who plays Mordred. Like this, the scene chewing is fun in this movie. Oh yeah, yeah, and and I think you're right. I think sometimes critics can be very can be. You don't have to like the movie. I'm not saying you do, and you could write a negative review. I, but sometimes I feel like when you don't talk about when you talk about the negatives, but don't talk about why it's a negative or how it could have been improved on. I, or you don't appreciate the positive things it did have. I think it's just, it, you're not being as productive. Yeah. And again, like you and I spoke about the story for an hour and a half, but I feel like there's some really neat interpretations that might've been there, might've not been. It's, I, I love that. Yeah. This is fun. It was fun. Glad we no, did this. Good. Okay. Yeah. Well, that is all we have for this episode. Um, in two weeks, we will have another episode covering a wuxia film, a very different kind of film from this. It's a martial arts film that's really crazy. Like there's vampires, there's like magic swords and crazy stuff. Uh, it's called Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain. And uh, we will see you with that in two weeks. Oh, you can follow us on social media, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, at Retrograde underscore pod. We have a YouTube Retrograde podcast. That's three words. We also have a Discord. Just DM us and we will send you an invite because we don't want any treacherous Mordred bots trying to split up the Discord and sell our members NFTs and shit. <laughs> so, and that's, that's becoming a, a bit now. I have to like incorporate our um discord in with the movie villain somehow no anyway. no, no i think it's a good i think it's a good gimmick it's like my bonanzas 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 <laughs> all right uh we'll see you in two weeks Bye bye <laughs>